Hey, 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 everybody. Hope you're doing well. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Great show. Oh, I love you guys. You great, great callers making my job so much easier. First caller is living in Germany, and he has a daughter, and he is within a stone's throw, I tell you, of one of the new migrant centers uh, filled by Muslims and North Africans who have swarmed into Germany over the last year or two. And uh, he's concerned. Should he move? Should he stay? Should he fight? When is the time to flee? When is the time to put up? a philosophical stand. Well, I think we came to some very interesting, hopefully enlightening, illuminating, and highly motivating answers. So listen in on that. Number two, did you know that there is in fact a capitalism party in Denmark? Yeah, I was a little surprised too. They've been around for a while and they're gaining traction considerably and significantly. We talked about the challenges of gaining freedom through the political process. Is there value in trying to do that? We had a good back and forth about that. Number three, a pretty wide-ranging conversation with a very charming and eloquent listener uh, who basically points out that the studies show people can only really know about 150, maybe 200 people. What effect does that have on a free society? And what effect is breaking that up through the welfare state having on our current society? A good, wide-ranging discussion of the history of social evolution in human beings and the future of freedom in groups or individually. So I think you'll enjoy that a lot. I know I did. So here we go. Here we go. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. You know you need to. You know you want to. Do not be a free rider. And fdrurl.com slash Amazon if you um, want to help us out and you've got some shopping to do. And with no further ado, here we go. First today is Frank. Frank wrote in and said, I live in Cologne, Germany, and the events on New Year's Eve kept me pretty upset. We moved here with my wife and kids to raise my little daughter in peace and security. As a libertarian, I was always aware of what was going on, but the last 12 months completely changed the country I used to know. However, if I decide to leave this country, where should I go? Besides the fact that it'll be hard to convince my wife to leave her family and friends behind, you must understand that Germans tend to be very attached to the place they live. It's not easy to move your whole life, especially after you settled with a house and kids. Furthermore, I think I remember you arguing for libertarians not to run, but to stay where they are and to try and make society better where they live. How do you achieve that when this place is going to hell in a handbasket? That's from Frank. Good question, Frank. How are you doing tonight? Hi. Thank you. I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Now, the events in Cologne, for those who don't know, is that there were a thousand plus German women grabbed, sexually assaulted, one or two were raped. And um, this was to some degree suppressed by the German media until it sort of erupted in social media. And what is the status now? Is it being reported on fairly well? Is it still a topic of conversation or has it gone down the memory hole? Well, it um, depends on, on what side you look at. If you look at the social media, especially with that Facebook algorithm, and uh, you know Facebook knows what you're looking for, and um, and you maybe look into a smaller newspaper, so your newsfeed scatter with these uh, this, this messages. It's, it's just flooded. I, I know actually. No, let me rephrase that. I don't know any libertarian anymore. Not blending out this amount of, of news of um, women getting uh, groped, harassed, violated, uh, actually little boys too, uh, in, in Germany and Austria. So this is 
while it's impossible to keep it under the rug, under the rock. On the other hand, on the other hand, the mainstream media, I hardly follow that anymore. But from what I hear and what I read here and there, it's well, it's reported once or twice, but. Um, Actually, it's more uh, the usual sharing of um, how great we are doing and that we should continue with this path and we shouldn't be all Nazis and uh, basically it's, um, yeah, it's uh, the politicians um, tend to, or they they changed their, their habit and started insulting the population. So that's where we are right now. Right. So anyone who has doubts about the value of importing a million plus third world inbred, relatively low IQ Muslims uh, is considered to be a racist and a Nazi and a bad person and um, should basically just shut the hell up and submit. Is that right? Uh, that's uh, about right, because it's, it is a hard topic. Uh, I know it is a hard topic. And um, I, I don't actually don't know where to start it because immigration this country has seen a lot of immigration, and there I re- recall maybe it was you, a show of yours, um, with a Swedish guy, and um, he was actually Iranian descent, I guess, or Persian, um, and uh, he said, there, okay, there are several waves of immigration, the first wave, second wave, third wave, and um, uh, it's more or less the same here. So um, there are a lot of migrants, you can call them, which are... Um, totally uh, shocked from what is happening here and uh, what kind of people we are importing. And um, the other day I went um, I went to ride the tram and I overheard, um, right beside the tram station, uh, it's a bus station, and I overheard Turkish bus drivers, you know, 50s and working their whole life, first generation, and they talked about those events and said, okay, the Germans... So you can do everything with, with them. They just, uh, um, how do you say that? They um, just won't fight back or fight the politicians as long as they have their car parked in front of their house. This is actually one Turkish bus driver talking to another one. The rest of, of the conversation I couldn't understand because he was changing from German to Turkish, and I don't speak Turkish. So that's. Uh, well, what does it mean when they say when the car is parked in front of the house? just means, um, well, what I, it means as long as it's in very, very, very small places, uh, you're not really personally attacked, then you just, I don't know, you try to ignore it, or you believe the media, um, it's, um, it's, it's hard to say, there's, there's, there's this, um, guy from a local pop group and uh, uh, his daughter got molested the other day, actually two or three days ago, and um, he still thinks um, that we shouldn't be all Nazis. So there's a father which which has a molested daughter and his political correctness is keeping him from, I don't know, be angry at at some point. Um, Right. it's it's hard for me to express because it, now it's a difficult topic and uh, it is a very great topic to divide 
the population, you know, uh, just to rule them better. And it's a difficult topic for, libert for libertarians because in a perfect world, who needs borders? Who needs countries anyway? Um, but like things are, the people are, either from the left or from the right, uh, calling for a strong state and for, I don't know, use your borders, make a border control. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that you cannot say, okay, uh, this is all bullshit and we shouldn't, be, shouldn't uh, give asylum to anyone who is, uh, who is uh, seeking it. But, um, it's, um, how, how do you say that? It's just plain madness. Uh, when, I, when I wrote you, I, I thought about um, phrasing this, how to stay sane in an insane world, because... Um, I just cannot cope with the, with the events anymore. I've, I've lived here all my life, and uh, I celebrated the 2000 New Year's Eve in Cologne. Actually, I crossed the place where that happened, and uh, Cologne, I don't know, usually there are uh, two millions in this city, so it's a, it's a city of a million population, and a million comes coming in and out, and in the state is living 18 million people, and on that New, New Year's Eve, I don't know, two, three, four million people in the city, and they were all partying, and it was, you know, New Year's, New Year's Eve of the year 2000, you had a fireworks going for hours, and the worst thing that happened to me is that I took my girlfriend and I was afraid that I couldn't get a, a great place uh, to watch the fireworks correctly. That's the worst thing that happened to me. And uh, you see, this is uh, a bit different now. Right, right. What does your wife think? Well, what does my wife think? She is afraid, actually. And um, I talk about, about all this stuff with her, and it, it kept me more awake. I'm, 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 I'm more aware of that, and uh, maybe I, I get paranoid. That's the other, other thing I'm thinking about, so maybe I'm overreacting, maybe all the new... No, 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 listen, Frank, Frank, listen. The reason that it's worrying you more than it's worrying your wife is because you're a man. And you and I and everybody else with balls knows who is going to have to fight should it come to that. Are they going to send your wife out or are they going to send you out? It's your job to worry about these things because it's largely going to affect you at least first. That's uh, your genetics, right? That's the genetics of being male is you have to worry about interlopers, right? Yes. And so it's, it's boiling down actually to a fight to some, uh, to some degree, and you are, of course, totally right. And now I'm a, I'm a father. I have a, a, a daughter. She is uh, one year and one month old, and she is just gorgeous. And this changed my life, and um, I am the one responsible. I'm not only the one responsible for her having a house, having to eat, having a great place to stay, but I'm responsible for her security. And as a German, I'm just totally unarmed. And the, the state, which is supposedly, I don't know, protecting me, all I hear from that state is actually insults to their own population. I, nice. I cannot actually, I saw Twitter feeds of the um, Minister of Justice and uh, other officials calling. Uh,
come. So it is it's hard to to phrase in words, especially in the middle of the night here. But it's in in broad daylight. It's even hard to phrase in words. And um, yeah, well, that led to that question: What should I do? I'm here. I'm unarmed. I have a family. I actually have a nice place. I moved away from the city in the suburbs to, well, it is peacefully or more peacefully and um, trying to raise a little, little child. And uh, if I go, where should I go? If I stay, what should I do? So there's this uh, philosopher, Peter Sloterdijk, uh, he's sometimes in the media very rarely and he said he had this quote telling, okay, if you are not a social democrat, which is actually already left in Germany, uh, you either leave or you uh, become, uh, you go mad. And I'm trying to avoid this, and that's actually uh, one of the reasons why I called in. Right. And what is your, you said you, you have family there. I assume that's your wife's family and your, your family. And what do they think of these events? Well, actually, um, my mother is, uh, is thinking the same. Uh, she, actually, she turned on her uh, uh, old base. I, I, I might say she turned to a full-blown libertarian, which is, uh, which is okay. But she starts to be very afraid. Also, she lives even further abroad, you know, far away from, from cities. Uh, I think my father is actually ignoring it, more or less. And uh, the family of my wife is, well, let me, how shall I put it? Oh, actually, I had some clash with the father of her because he's, more mainstream than me, to, to put it this way. And so we decided uh, some time ago not to talk about the political issues anymore because it just uh, doesn't work out that way. So, um, yeah, what are people saying? People try right. not to, to go on and uh, somehow avoid this. But um, uh, as I talked to, to with my mother-in-law, I said in October or September, I don't know, I said, okay, you are importing one million people from different countries here. And despite the best intentions, I don't know even if it's one million surgeons, you will have trouble because it's just one million people. And you know, you and I know it's it's not one million very civilized persons. So, what do you think will is going to happen? And um, well, now we here. Sorry, but you just about to finish your thought. I'm not sure if I dropped uh, it. Yeah, in. well, actually, she didn't answer my question because it was a rhetorical <laughs> question, and she didn't say anything. My, my mother-in-law and. Um, I haven't spoken to her uh, since, so uh, actually I feel a bit also um, left alone with the topic. Of course, I have friends I can talk about or, or chat with uh, some, some guys online, but uh, to see this immediate danger or um, seeing how things changed, uh, it's, it's hard. It's a, it's a difficult topic to talk about. So right. I have no... If you talk to people in private and off the record, 
they tend to agree with you. Or if it gets more official or bigger round, um, they tend to uh, silence up. Actually, I talked. To, I know a lot of people who lived in the in the uh, old East Germany, you know, under the uh, communist regime, and they all say the same. It is worse than it has been under um, a communist regime because back in the days, everybody knew what the media was 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 giving out of as news. It was bullshit, and they had this feeling about you know it's us against them up there. And nowadays, it's not that easy anymore because a lot of people still believe the media and a lot of people um, think what we are doing is a good thing because they want to be humanitarian, which you can argue with, which is a noble cause. But it's not only that, you know. Well, I mean, this this question of humanitarianism is obviously important and it is a weakness of Europeans, of Caucasians, this pathological altruism. Uh, pathological altruism is a very soft form of cultural suicide and pathological altruism is something where if it's your known group of people, your a tribe, uh, your group, it doesn't have to be racial, it can be cultural, it can be philosophical. If it's your in-group, then there's nothing that you wouldn't do for your daughter. There's nothing that I wouldn't do for my daughter, my wife, my friends. If it's my group, then there's no limit to my humanitarianism, my generosity, self-sacrifice, whatever you want to call it. And because white people have been verbally abused out of having any collective self-interest, what's happened is the in-group preference shown by just about every other ethnic group and, and by women and so on, uh, by Democrats, um, the in-group preference has been cracked and broken for white males. And therefore, the, the, the self-sacrifice, the altruism, the humanitarianism of white males has spilled out across the whole world. It is no longer restrained by in-group preferences. It is now for everyone. And uh, the, the reasons for all of that are sort of complex, and we've gone into them uh, in, in a number of presentations. But uh, that aspect of being humanitarian is um, how do you say no to it? How do you, how do you say no to it? Well, the funny thing is you say no to it in the same way that all of the countries in the Middle East, all of the Muslim countries are saying no to it. You know, like <laughs> you first, right? You go to Saudi Arabia, go to Qatar, go to all these countries, uh, and say, well, you first. You, you take them in, you integrate them, show us how it's done, we'll take a generation and see how it's working out for you. Uh, but this idea is that when, when people come to Europeans or to North Americans, and in particular to whites, and they come and they say, these people are in need, you must help them. It has become almost impossible for white people to say no. And, and, the, and the reason for that, of course, is because this great fiction of racial egalitarianism has been so pushed uh, on. And really, it's only been the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. If you look at libertarian writings of the 16s, uh, in the 60s, sorry, there's a fair decent consciousness about what's called race realism or taking the biological facts about race and, and accepting them as, as a reality. 
so it really has been like 50 years or so where the race, this is the basic principle and, and the basic premise that works. All races, all ethnicities, all cultures are equal. There's no difference. If there is any perceivable difference, that difference is 100% environmental. 100% environmental. So there are, no fun, there are no biological differences between any ethnicities. Where any aggregate differences show up among ethnicities, the difference is entirely bio, uh, environmental. And, and those two principles, there's no difference biologically, therefore any collective differences must be entirely environmental. Those two basic arguments combine together so that anyone who does not want another ethnicity coming into the environment that they live in can only be motivated by irrational bigotry. And, and this fundamental reality uh, uh, this fundamental sequence of, of thought is something that is very hard for people to push back on. If you accept all ethnicities are biologically identical and the only differences that show up in aggregate must be due to environment, then it's crazy to not want people to come into your environment. Now, there's other arguments, even if you accept all that, there are other arguments for pushing back against mass migration from third world countries or cultures. But that those those two basic principles uh, are, are very foundational. And it, it really doesn't take much thought, even if you don't want to study the, the, the biology, the IQ differences uh, and, and the differences in aggression uh, that, uh, you know, we talked about this in The Truth About Crime, the, the warrior gene prevalence among the black population and so on. Even if you, you cast all of that aside and, and you go to – and this, this argument comes from the left because it's all economic determinism, right? That the, the third world does only have the characteristics they have because of their place in relationship to the, uh, the means of production, right? Because they have a particular relationship to um, the, the, the capital, to the, the economy. And so if you take them from the third world and put them in the first world, they will very quickly become like first worlders. And uh, therefore, the only reason you wouldn't want to do so is, be, is because of racism and so on. But it, it really is a ridiculous argument because it's sort of like saying, well, if you take uh, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders and you somehow force them into the Republican Party, then within a couple of years, they'll be full-throated 100% Republicans. And that is... Uh, it, I mean, anybody who thinks about that just for a moment would recognize that that is a ridiculous proposition. Um, uh, Islam, well, of course, uh, 1400 years ago started and very quickly within 100 years spread wildly across the um, Middle East. And when Islam went to new countries, they did not become like the people in those new countries. They dominated and, and uh, Muhammad was rather famous for giving the convert or die commandment or live as a sort of subjugated third-class citizen. And so when Islam went to other countries, it did not assimilate, it, it dominated. And you can just ask the Hindus in Pakistan for how that all went. And um, the leftists know very much that you have to keep a monoculture in order to keep a belief system going, which is why leftists, when they take over universities, they no longer allow right-wing people very much to, to get into those universities. And when they take over a newspaper, they don't allow non-left-wing people into the editorial staff or the board. So as soon as the leftists come in, 
they kick out everyone who's not a leftist and they won't hire anyone except a leftist. And so they fully, and they don't sit there and say, well, let's get Phyllis Schlafly in here. She's a, a, an American conservative uh, who's in her 80s. Let's get Phyllis Schlafly in here because after she's been here for a year or two or three, she'll be just like us, right? They keep those people away from the media, from the movie making, from the novel writing, from the publishing companies, from the academics, uh, everything that they are striving in to take over, they don't let other cultures come in to their monoculture because they know that it's not going to work, that it's going to be lots of conflict, lots of battles, and no one's going to change their minds. So the leftists who say to everyone, oh, you know, it's all environmental, just let them in and they'll be just like you, they're the same leftists who fiercely defend all of the centers of power that they take over and keep everyone who's not a leftist out. And that hypocrisy is something that you don't like. You just have to look at that basic reality, which everybody knows about. At least everyone who's educated has been through uh, all of the um, uh, government schools and, and, and government run or government controlled higher education. Yeah. They know this sort of monomania and they know it from the media and so on. Right. Like the, 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 the Spiegel is not bringing in a whole bunch of anti-immigration people and saying, well, they're really great writers. They just happen to not agree with us on immigration. But don't worry, after they've been at Der Spiegel for a year or two, they'll be just like us, right? And, and so the fact is that these people who say we welcome a diversity of opinion are shitty little totalitarians insofar as they, they're working. Mark Zuckerberg is working with Angela Merkel to shut down dissent on Facebook. And you can get visits from the police in many places in Europe if you post things anti-immigrant or skeptical of these uh, uh, African migrants I, coming into your I country know, en masse. So, yeah, let me just finish and then I'll, I'll shut up. But this, th they are petty little totalitarians. They have no interest in diversity of opinion. Those on the left uh, have had uh, soul-crushing monomania for public discourse uh, ever since the left basically came around in its modern form in the mid to late 19th century, which is why there's no freedom of speech in communist countries and why in socialist countries, and as Lenin said, the goal of socialism is communism, there is a repression of dissent. So all the people who say, well, are you against diversity? It's like, well, why can we not have a public debate about this? Well, you can't have a public debate about this because the left has no facts. The left has only a verbal abuse to pour upon people. So they can't have information and facts and biology and reality and brain size and IQ and cultural history and inbreeding and genetics and religious uh, intolerance and theocracy and no separation of church and state, like all of the things that are going to come in that are problematic. They can't discuss those because those are facts. And it's a lot easier to just scream verbal abuse at people and call them a Nazi and a fascist and a racist than it is to actually deal with any facts. And so this aspect of things is really clear that the left, which promotes diversity, is not even remotely interested in diversity. They're interested in a one-size-fits-all mental straitjacket where dissent is crushed through verbal abuse and the power of the state. It's the same totalitarian impulse that the West has been fighting ever since they made Socrates drink some hemlock. So I sympathize with where you're coming from. It is an old battle. And, uh, you know, as Ben Shapiro says, the left never sleeps, right? They're continually working on this stuff. And the challenge, of course, is that the left uh, want to control people, whereas free market people want to go out and actually get something done with their lives. So the left, because they want to control people, are continually focused and their survival depends upon the control of people. So they never stop what they're doing. Whereas everyone else, you know, you're a dad, you've got a job, you're a husband, you've got stuff to do. 
Whereas the left is this all they focus on uh, is this uh, spreading out these memes to control and humiliate and bully and abuse other people. And so, uh, you know, when you've got someone focused 12 hours a day on a task and someone else who can barely spare half an hour a day to rebut it, uh, it's just a matter of time uh, until um, the people with less time to allocate to the conflict tend to uh, find their support eroding. So that's sort of at least the beginning of the introduction. There's other things I want to talk about, but I want to get your thoughts on what I've said. Okay, great. So um, when I, if there are other things you want to talk about, just just um, ask me. But uh, a lot of things uh, came up, and um, you know, just to to stick to my question is, uh, if I stay here, let's just stick with that for a second. How do I fight this fight? In because it's on all frontiers. Because um, you are as an anarcho-capitalist, I wasn't um, too much fond of the state anyway, and I'm not not too surprised to see it break it, it, it rules but um, what happened which we talked about about this facebook this specific facebook task force which our attorney general forced facebook into which is uh, sitting right in berlin and actually employs former members of the um uh, how do you say that? Secret the Stasi, service. the German secret police, East German secret police. East right? secret German police. He takes your taxpayer money and uses to censor the Attorney General completely against every rule in the book there is from this state. And he does it in the blink of an eye. And he's, he's not even a great guy. He's not, a, you know, like a great politician, just evil. Uh, he's he's was basically you know just uh, Merkel's hand puppet, and uh, he's he's able to pull this off, and uh, the media coverage on this is well, let me put it this way: if there's a train accident, it'll it'll be um, more over the media than this. So this country and this continent, I, I said that a long time ago, but this is obvious, very clear. This is right now a totalitarian regime. It's a socialistic, communistic, or you can call it fascistic, I don't know. I, don't, I don't, actually don't care. But it is, it's far from, you know, the rule of law, like many, many artists talking. We are living in uh, some sort of totalitarian regime. Again, and if you ever ask yourself how you know, um, the Nazis could happen, and you ask that yourself as a German, you ask that a lot. If you ever uh, ask yourself how East Germany and the communism could happen, you ask that a lot too. We are right back there. And um, so this is one, one uh, line of defense you have to put up because the state is, is incredible. It's just it's not just insulting their own, their own people, it's actually fighting against you. You are a citizen of second class. Actually, I have some, some uh, things happening to me, uh, and I have, uh, there are other, uh, how do you say, there are other, you know, the, the so-called refugees are free to use um, the public transportation, in, uh, including the trains. And so what do they do? They go to the first class because, you know, if it's free of charge, why not uh, uh, take a journey in style? While you sit there and pay a lot of money just to use a train. 
And uh, so you are actually a citizen of second class. And this is not just one example. There are a ton of examples and some examples I, I exclusively know of, which happened before. This is not all so much news. It's just, you know, boiling up. It's just coming to, I don't know, to, uh, to some, uh, it's, 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 it's getting faster. So the, the um, lane to, to the catastrophe is, is just getting faster. And actually, I don't know where it's leading to. Yes, you do. Yeah, you do. You do. You know where okay. it's leading to. Right? What do you think is going to happen? Well, what I said is going to happen is a civil war, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they're not going to assimilate. They're not. They're not going to assimilate, and this is not just me guessing. This is uh, very clear evidence from history that uh, particularly racially disparate groups don't assimilate. I mean, blacks and whites have been trying to to work on this hundreds of years, off and on, in, in various forms in um, America. And when blacks and Hispanics move into a neighborhood, w- what happens to the white people? They leave. They leave. Yeah. And that's what I did. I left the big city because big cities, okay, that's okay. So I move here and actually we, we take, we rent a house because my, my wife is a, is a doctor and I'm an academic too. And I freelance, I, I make good money, but we, you know, you know how it is with the economy and, and, and the, uh, the uh, real estate prices. We cannot afford a house. That's because there's nothing left to buy because the money is worthless. That's basically it. Okay, so we rent a house. And um, I put some work in this house anyway, so also it's, it's rent because we cannot afford something great new. So I put work into, into this house. And um, when I come back from work and I go to work into the house and do some, I don't know, build some walls and do stuff, uh, I find a little uh, sheet of paper in my mailbox informing me, the governor of this small uh, town here in the suburbs of Cologne is informing me that um, the local gymnasium, it's from a school, you know, where they do sports and stuff, 200 meters from here, will not be longer used from the school anymore. They will put up a refugee camp over there, 200 meters from where I'm standing right now. And he's not actually asking you if you agree, because you pay with your tax dollars with it, or your taxpayer money. He's just uh, informing you that it'll be, uh, from, uh, from now on, until further notice, a home for some refugees, so-called refugees, I call them, or we say that, asylum seekers. So um, that's uh, the, the private challenge. You, you, you have the challenge, the state's challenging you, challenging, challenging you. Um, well, your private life is being challenged. And then, of course, you have some... You have your, your social um, life being challenged uh, because, you know, this, um, this refugee uh, topic was very hot and uh, a lot of uh, people, especially young people, volunteered. And there's this great interview with Rahim Tagajdan um, in some local uh, German libertarian magazine. There is actually one. And uh, he is actually um, an Austrian philosopher living in Vienna. So he's an Austrian in Austria. And uh, he said a very clever thing. He said, okay, this is, um, these are quite rich t- 
teenagers or young adults, and uh, they've been brought up and they have been given everything, and now they could you know, um, do the, for the first thing in their life, they could do something which they thought meant something. You know, when we all this started, we had these teenagers and young adults standing at the train stations with refugee welcome signs and all that stuff and helping out and collecting clothes and, and uh, giving food to them. Also, this all was already provided. But So this is um, how social life is also, you know, woven in, into this fabric. So you have a lot of, um, a lot of ground to cover to... to to defend yourself about this overwhelming attack on all sides. And um, like you said, um, or I think at least I think you said, you should once in a while, as a libertarian, you shouldn't just move away, you should stand and uh, make the best out of your life. But uh, I, to re just repeat my question, just not to be annoying, how should I do No, no, I get it. And I'll, I'll get to that. I, I haven't forgotten it. But I've just for other people, you know, I have to be aware because of all our new subscribers that a lot of people are going to be listening to this with no context, no history. Race egalitarianism, in other words, all races have are the same. And, and the only differences are environmental has become a, a, a religion and, and people die for religions. Uh, you know, people will will go to the wall and many people who've adapted to a particular fantasy will choose death over the destruction of that fantasy. And we can see this, of course, uh, in wars, people will volunteer to protect the state that has oppressed them and will literally walk into machine gun fire rather than challenge the assumption of the virtue of the state. And people will, will choose death over the destruction of their illusions. Uh, the destruction of illusions for most people is a kind of uh, soul or spiritual or character death that they would rather die than face. And th this is the big challenge with the modern world, which is that this race egalitarianism has become such a foundational aspect of decisions that have been made since, at least in America, since the 1960s, since 1965, when the vast majority of immigrants to America by design were uh, white Europeans, and now it's down to like virtually nothing, and the vast majority of immigrants who are coming in are third worlders, Muslims, uh, and so on. And this, of course, the only, once, once you laid the foundation that all the races are the same, then the only reason you wouldn't want a race coming in is because you're a racist. And this screaming down of every and any biological fact that clearly shows that the races which diverged 50,000 years ago and went into wildly different climates in Siberia, Africa, yeah, you can't. So there's this idea that the, the races which biologically diverged 50,000 years ago yeah, I can just I know. be reintegrated. Sorry, I can just give you a, a small example. You don't have to go to Siberia. Actually, as was some German king, some a, lot, a long time ago, sent a group of people to claim a very mountainous area and to you know to form a special population. And actually, they did and formed what is now nowadays uh, called Switzerland. So. Um, 
I think the, the German king had, didn't have in mind that they form their own country, but it's, uh, you know, you can have this on a very small scale. Uh, I, this is a tiny country compared to, uh, to, to, to Canada or the United States, and actually um, you go, I don't know, half an hour, an hour, and you have a different type of dialect, and uh, I, you go an hour and you're in a different country. So, yes, people are different, very different, <clears throat> and they like to be different. Actually, uh, I talk with this with some of my friends, and uh, not just to cut you off too, too long, and um, I made the argue, you know, from Hans Hermann Hoppe to, 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 uh, to that secession is good, and that we should, um, we should form smaller units, the smaller the better. And he actually, he came up with uh, some paper. Uh, I just managed to, to read the abstract that they actually they made the the, um, the paper was about uh, Switzerland too and uh, about conflict and not conflict and uh, yeah well boils down to okay borders of any kind not state borders necessarily but um, are natural and the more you know the, the smaller the, uh, the units are and the more uh, plain or clear you know your border is the less conflict there is in between even these um, these different groups. So, yes, you don't have to go to Siberia. You just have to take, I don't know, uh, a car and drive two hours through Europe, and you'll see immediately why this is true. Okay. and But I'm talking more about visible racial differences. Um, so the analogy which I'll deploy here is the brown bear and the polar bear. Right. <laughs> to, to take some obvious examples. Of course, polar bears have adapted to life in the snow, which is why their skin is white. It allows them to avoid uh, being seen by the seals and rabbits or whatever the hell they, they prey on up there. And um, that has taken quite some time to evolve that way. It may have been fast, may have been slow, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a ways. And there's other things, right? The capacity to hibernate for a long period of time where they lose like massive portions of body fat and so on. I know that the bears also hibernate, but they're not going to lose quite as much uh, uh, because the temperatures aren't as bad. So you have brown bears and you have polar bears. Now, this is where people get messed up because they think that if the facts are that the races are different, that this has something to do with a race being superior or inferior. And that is a biologically incomprehensible and ridiculous and prejudicial statement. Which is better, a polar bear or a brown bear? Which bear is superior? Well, um, that doesn't make any sense, right? Now, if you take a brown bear and put it in the Arctic, it's inferior because it's in the wrong environment. If you take a polar bear and you put it in the woods, well, this big ghostly glowing white hide of it is going to uh, have it show up fairly clearly to anything it's trying to hunt, and it's going to not do well because it's in the wrong environment. So saying that the races are different has nothing to do with saying that any race is superior or inferior. Who's better at living in Africa? Blacks. <laughs> Who's better at living in Europe? Europeans. That's biology. That's the way that local adaptation to very, very widely disparate environments works, that you adapt to, you know, why are people white? Because white people need more vitamin D, and if your skin is too dark, you won't get enough, you'll get rickets, and you'll die. So that's sort of one example. So it's got nothing to do with superiority or inferiority, just adapted to local standards and local environments. Now, if you take a whole bunch of brown bears 
and put them in the Arctic, they're going to fail generally. It's not, it's not going to work out very well for them in the same way if you take a whole bunch of polar bears and you put them in a forest, they're going to fail. Now, how long is it going to take to adapt? How much pain, how much difficulty, how much danger, how many premature deaths are going to have to happen for the adaptation to occur? Well, it's a lot and it's gruesome. But the way that it kind of works is you take the polar bear and you put it in the woods, so North European woods, uh, and, and what happens is the polar bear doesn't succeed in the woods because the woods are, you know, the, the brown bear has adapted to the woods. And so what happens is the polar bears who don't succeed in the woods start screaming at the brown bears that the brown bears are racist against the polar bears. And that the brown bears, that the only reason the polar bears are not succeeding is because the brown bears are holding them down or keeping them down. It's not the fact that they're in the wrong environment relative to their genetic adaptation. The, 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 the brown bears are just anti-white hair bigots. And uh, therefore, the brown bears owe the polar bears food, right? So for every berry you pick, I've got to have half. For, for everything that you, you, every root you dig up, or I don't know what do they eat, rabbits, grizzlies or something. So for everything that you kill or everything that you get that you can eat, you've got to give us half to atone for your anti-polar bear bigotry, your anti-polar bear racism. And, of course, what happens is that uh, if the brown bears accept this and say, well, I guess the only difference is the color of our fur, and therefore your lack of success must be our fault, well, uh, that must be, uh, they're going to hand over all of these resources, which is going to prevent any further adaptation from the polar bears to the local environment, because they're getting resources without having to adapt to the local environment. So, listen... Without the welfare state, without the forced redistribution of income, come one, come all. We, we, you know, when people are allowed to be with groups that they want, to not be with groups that they don't like, when incompatibilities are allowed to be expressed through voluntary association, uh, fine, I, great, you know, no problem. If, if the polar bears want to make a go for it in the woods or the brown bears want to make a go for it in the snow okay you know i'm not gonna shoot them right go and give it you may not probably work out but you know give it a shot see see how it works out for you but uh, once you have this forced redistribution of income you are uh, setting the stage for a brutal kind of civil war so diversity plus proximity plus the state equals civil war and you know i was just reading about South Korea, South Korea, one of the richest places in the world, 99 plus percent ethnic homogeneity. I mean, I, I can't imagine if you're an, a, a South Korean, you wake up in the morning and you say, man, if we had a million Muslims here, our society would be so enriched. <laughs> it would be, you know, if they couldn't speak the language, if they came from a tradition entirely hostile to our culture, and if they had tried repeatedly to invade, destroy, and subjugate South Korea, let's just invite a whole bunch of them in. I mean, who would wake up in, in South Korea and run on that platform? It would make no sense whatsoever. So even if we want to deny the IQ differences and the cultural difference, biological differences and, and religious differences and so on, you just have to ask the Germans around you, what's in it for you? 
Like, why are whites and white males the only group who are never allowed to ask, what's in it for me? Why would I want to give my money to Muslims rather than save it for my own children? I don't see the Muslims saying, hey, here's a whole bunch of free oil, white people, because we don't want to accumulate any value and, and resources and capital for ourselves. Here's all this free oil. Like, holy shit, how, how, how cucked up did we become that we are dealing with a group that regularly, you know, in the 70s, you know, what did I remember from the Muslims in the 70s? Well, and the, the Saudi and the OPEC and so on. Holy shit. They jacked up the price of oil and virtually decimated Western economies because they wanted to make a killing. Okay. So that's, and they never said, oh, I'm so sorry. That was a really, really terrible thing to do. Why have Westerners become so cucked in the butt? that they will extend massive amounts of civilization and culture and economy-destroying, quote, charity to groups that have not shown the barest charitable impulse, in fact, an exploitive and predatory impulse towards Europeans, not only throughout history and distant history, but recent history and, and in the present. And um, I, uh, I don't know, this real politics side has got to be reaffirmed at some point or another. There's politics is one problem. Okay, so the answer I got uh, to that question one time was, well, it's just dumb luck that we were born here and they were born over there, so um, they have the right to be here. That's an answer, an honest answer I got once. What the, what the hell sense does that make? Listen, hot girls are more likely to sleep with hot guys. Right? Is that a fair thing to say? In, you know, when everyone's young and dumb. Yeah. Right? Okay, okay. Okay. So, um, Danny DeVito, I don't know, whoever is considered to be a not that hot guy. Great actor. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Danny DeVito happened to be born short, bald, and with a tendency to portliness. Right? Now, it's not Danny DeVito's fault that he was not born looking like Brad Pitt. It's not his fault. So, he should get as sexy a set of women as Brad, Cut, Brad Pitt got in his prime, or Zac Efron, or, you know, Julian Assange, for that matter, who seemed to be quite a chick magnet. So it's not his fault, not the fault of the short, bald, fat, ugly guy that he was not born tall, lustrous-haired, and handsome. So women should be lining up to surrender themselves to his groping embraces because it's not his fault. He just happened to be born that way. I mean... It's not my fault I wasn't born with the voice of Freddie Mercury, so everyone should give me a recording contract. It's not my fault. It's like, who, what, what conceivable sense does any of this make? I mean, this is where people were born. You know, and, and if it's any consolation, you know, the, the higher intelligence of the Ashkenazi Jews, of, of the East Asians, and of the Caucasians came about because of ridiculous levels of suffering where less intelligent people tended to get wiped out by eating their seed crop during the winter. So, you know, well, they happen to be born over there and we happen to be born here. Okay, well, we got battle-hardened to high intelligence because of ridiculous amounts of environmental obstacles to taking our next goddamn breath. So they were lucky to be born over there because they faced much less of a death sentence from the environment than happened to be born in northern Europe or Siberia or other places or facing the persecutions that the Jews faced through a lot of their history. So I don't know, this idea that it was just dumb luck that, huh, it's like, 
God, I mean, what's that? The, 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 there is a great variety in, in how people are born and, and where people are born and so on. The idea that you're then going to use the, the power of the state to somehow try and remediate this. Okay, when, when they pass a law saying hot guys, uh, sorry, when they pass a law saying hot women have to bang Danny DeVito, okay, then I'll start to think that people are taking this seriously. But other than that, I just assume it's just complete lefty bullshit. Okay, so, um, and, uh, to, to, to take that further. Well, um, now I lost the question. <laughs> okay, let me let me finish up with uh, with where I think things are going to go, and then and then we'll talk about what might be a worthwhile thing yeah. to do. Okay, so let's uh, let's uh, let us speak frankly now, for the hour is getting late. To to prey upon people, you must first. Force feed them delusions when they're children, right? To, to, to reap the reward of them giving you tithes, you must force feed them with the delusion of religiosity when they're children. To, to force people uh, or, or to profit from people's sense that they owe the state taxes, you must fill them full of status propaganda when they're children so that they feel like they're paying their fair share or whatever it is. So once you stuff people with delusions, delusions are the manure from which the flower of uh, exploitation tends to grow. And societies um, have this constant tension between the rulers want you to be deluded enough that you voluntarily transfer goods, resources, young health, wealth, and charity to the rulers. And so because more and more people always want to rule, the push away from reality from the ruling classes. And by that, I don't just mean the aristocracy or the clergy, but also, I mean, the people on welfare, the people in the military industrial complex, uh, everyone who is preying upon the body politic, which in America now is about half the population at a minimum. So more and more, once you get this, this crop of deluded people who cough up resources in order to maintain the fragility of their egos based upon their delusions, once you have that crop, you get you know, you throw out a handful of corn, you're going to get a sky full of crows. And so when you get this system set up, more and more people want to prey on the makers, right? The takers want to prey on the makers. And the takers are interested in sowing delusion into the minds of the makers so that the makers feel guilty if they're not handing over resources to the takers. So this is why societies continually get pushed further and further away from reality because you need more and more predation. And this is why you can see in the West this addiction to unreality, which is driven by verbal abuse and, and the isolation that, that comes from this, right? Anybody who now speaks the truth in Europe uh, stands to be uh, socially isolated, to lose their career, uh, to maybe even lose their family, to maybe even lose their freedom if they speak wrong to the cops who might come by. And so... Because delusion is how human beings are preyed upon, and you constantly have more and more people who want to prey on the diminishing set of makers in society, the people who are actually producing something, the propaganda to drive people further into the foggy caves of delusion continues. And then people end up, like the, the society ends up so far away from any kind of reality that it collapses. And th so that's where... Europe and, and the West and, and whites are at the moment, that they're so preyed upon. Uh, and unlike the Asians and the Ashkenazi Jews, who basically say, screw you, we're not interested in being preyed upon, 
there is this pathological altruism for a variety of reasons going through the white population. And so they're continually being driven further and further away from reality so that they can be exploited more and more and more. And this will continue until one of two things happen. Either we use philosophy to push back against the delusions or we simply uh, conform and cuck our heads and bow and scrape and beg and plead for another five minutes of freedom until everything collapses and the men are herded off to fight some sort of civil war. These are the only two possibilities in my mind that can occur going forward. So what is it that you should do? I think recognize that basic fact. And you have to talk about, you know, however uncomfortable it may make you. And I'm not talking about forget Facebook. God, forget that. I mean, it's, it's in your personal relationships that these realities have to come up in. And um, if, uh, if libertarians had been talking about what's called race realism, uh, if they hadn't dropped the ball uh, and become race egalitarians, then they would have done a fantastic service to the survival of Western civilization. But generally, they tend to be in the pro-immigrant, everyone's the same nonsense by ignoring basic facts of biology, reality, and evolution. And so um, we just need to keep bringing up this information and say, look, these people uh, are a standard deviation below us in IQ, and nobody knows how to fix it. Right? That, that's all, all that needs to be said. On average, right, these, these people are a standard deviation below Europeans, white Europeans in IQ. And nobody knows how to fix it. Nobody knows how to fix it. And the estimates are 50 to 80% genetics. And they also have, how on earth are they going to integrate if there's biology behind this IQ difference if their religion says you can't marry outside the religion? <laughs> I mean, that's not going to work. And people, of course, they do get confused because, you know, recently uh, I, I was talking about the, um, uh, the, the lower IQs uh, that are recorded in, uh, in Iran. And some people got upset. Oh, these measurements were taken from the 50s. It's like, OK, well, fine. You know, and so instead of what it was, low 80s, it's low 90s. So I'm giving 10 points or whatever. But what happens is when it comes to judging immigrants in a relatively free society, well, the first people who come over are fantastic. <laughs> Of course they are, because they're the smartest people in that entire society. It's sort of like if you're a Hollywood casting agent, relatively high up, like you're casting blockbuster movies and so on, you're not seeing the Mike Browns of the American society, uh, of the black society. You're seeing the cream of the crop, right? 20% of American blacks are smarter than the average white. And so you're seeing, in a sense, the Dr. Souls of the acting world. And so every black that you interact with is smart and ambitious and funny and together and, you know, probably have all of the associated, you know, long-term stable marriages that go along with the higher intelligence. And so what, because you're exposed to those people, you say, well, I can't imagine why blacks aren't succeeding as a whole because all the blacks I know are fantastic. Well, okay, fantastic. We've had a lot of blacks call into this show and I've really enjoyed the chance with them being great people to chat with. And so that when you when you get immigrants coming first wave, they're the smartest, they're the cream de la creme. But that doesn't represent the the entire population as a whole. And of course, you know, people say, well, you know, since the fifties, I'm sure that the Iranian IQ has gone up. Not sure it has. Might have gone down. Might have gone down for for a couple of reasons. One, of course, is that um, well. Uh, since the early 1980s, which I guess is close to a generation and a half or two generations now, depending on how it's measured. Well, you've had um, fundamentalist Islam in charge of the country, which is not exactly uh, an encouragement to high IQ, skeptical, scientific style very, reading that's patterns. Very easy, 
Bradbury, the every yeah. intelligent Iranian who couldn't make a, uh, make it out alive of this country is either here or in Sweden. So uh, and having a shop or uh, doing something for the, for for living, uh, I can tell you that. So and I don't know what the entire depop- depopulation paradigm, uh, sorry, the entire depopulation proportion of the Iranian country was, but let's say that the top five or ten percent of the smartest people left the country. Okay. So you've just decapitated the gene pool of the most right. intelligent people for the most part. And the most intelligent people, um, in a theocracy, less intelligent people, more brutal people tend to thrive, which is one of the reasons why there's not been much of a reformation in Islamic societies for, I don't know, the past almost millennia and a half. Because uh, lower IQ people tend to be more religious. And in a theocracy, lower IQ people end up at the top of the food chain, which is why Lower IQ people love theocracy because they succeed in a way that they wouldn't in a more secular uh, society. And so I would argue that there's pretty good reasons to believe that um, the uh, Iranian population on average would probably have a lower IQ given that the high IQ outliers of 5 or 10% of the population have all fled the country uh, since the 1980s or even before. And so, so what happens is people, the Iranians come over and people are like, wow, these guys are fantastic. Let's have more. And it's like, eh, this is not a cross-representational uh, sample of the uh, society as a whole. And that, of course, what's happening in Europe is Europe is now receiving all of the people who never had the smarts, the ambition, the gumption, the opportunity, whatever you want to call it, to leave Africa over the past hundred years. All the people who were left behind in these countries as the smarter people had gone out and gotten to the West. So uh, it is not a, uh, a very good situation. And this I will mention, though, I've mentioned it, of course, before, is that uh, you know, blood-related marriages are uh, ridiculously common in um, Middle Eastern, in Islamic countries. And um, uh, this has been known to, what is it, 8 to 10 to 15 to 17 IQ points, right? So on average, you could say close to a standard deviation drop in IQ, which puts you right in the middle of the highest criminal uh, group. Uh, highest criminality tends to be around IQ 85. Lower, and you don't tend to plan that much, and higher, you tend to recognize that criminality is not going to do you much good in your life. And so you have, of course, in Christianity, which has largely banned cousin marriages, or blood-related marriages, you have that gene pool um, not to mention all the, the 2% or whatever it is of Neanderthal DNA, which is supposed to have really helped uh, Europeans advance in intelligence, you have a consanguine or blood-related gene pool coming in. 34% of all marriages in Algiers are blood-related, 46% in Bahrain, 33% in Egypt, 80% in Nubia, which is a southern area in Egypt, 60% in Iraq, 64% in Jordan, 64% in Kuwait, 42% in Lebanon, 48% in Libya, 47% in Mauritania, Mauritania, sorry, 54% in Qatar, 67%, more than two-thirds of marriages are blood-related in Saudi Arabia, 63% in Sudan, 40% in Syria, 39% in Tunisia, 54% in the United Arab Emirates, 45% in Yemen, and in Syria, it is or was 40%, Iran, um, almost a third, 32.5%, almost a third of marriages in Iran are blood-related. That is crushing for the development of intelligence and causes a massive fallback to Stone Age levels, I would argue, of the capacity to reason. And so you have a group that is coming in that is um, 
a bunch of polar bears coming into a forest populated by brown bears, they're going to fail on average. There'd be some notable exceptions. Yes, yes, Steve Jobs was the son of a Syrian, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I get it. There are exceptions, but so what? So what? So what? The reality is that en masse, they're going to fail. And because nobody's talking about the biological realities of why they're going to fail, what's going to happen is you're going to get into this vicious cycle where all failures of immigrant groups are blamed on white racism. All failures in immigrant groups are blamed on white racism. That's really bad for the whites because it leads to more stupid, pointless guilt and self-flagellation and gives more ammunition to the social justice warriors and all that. Why would you want that? Why would you want that? And second of all, you are importing, or I shouldn't say importing, but you are getting a whole bunch of people into your country. And it pains me to say all of this. I wish none of this were true, but we've got to grit our teeth and face reality or face the demise of civilization because civilization is fundamentally predicated on valuing reality, reason, and evidence over all else. But um, this uh, lower IQ group of genetically crippled people are going to come into European countries. They're going to fail. And bringing in hundreds of thousands of very low sexual market value Middle Eastern or, or North African or African men is a sure recipe for disaster. So, and no one's going to tell them the truth and going to say, well, look, you're a polar bear in a forest. It's not going to work out that well for you. You're not adapted to this environment and your failures are not the fault of white people. Because, of course, if white people were so racist, then the Jews wouldn't be so much in prominence and the, the um, uh, East Asians wouldn't have higher incomes per capita than whites. No, the, the market, the free market, the remnants thereof sorts relentlessly by intelligence. And unfortunately, that's, and you can see this in average incomes for each ethnic group, it's, it goes almost exactly along IQ lines. The highest Ashkenazi Jews, then East Asians, then whites, then Hispanics, then blacks, and Middle Easterners somewhere around where, yeah, somewhere between. So what's going to happen is you're going to have this very aggressive group of people with a relatively low IQ coming into your country, and the media is going to say, well, you're exactly the same as everyone here. The only reason you're not succeeding is those fucking white people are racists. Those fucking white people are goddamn bigots and racists and they secretly hate you. And that's the only reason why you are failing. They're keeping you down. They're holding you down. They've got their boot on your neck. They refuse to hire you because they're bigoted. They're evil. They're racists. Nasty, vicious, tribal bigots. Oh, that's great. So not only is a low IQ, highly aggressive population coming into Europe, but the media is going to constantly pound this drumbeat and instigate them to hate everyone around them who's white. Oh, that's great. Nothing bad can come out of that. Constantly repeating to people because there's this denial of race reality, constantly repeating to these people that the only reason they're not succeeding is the goddamn white people, the racist bigots who hate them. Yeah, that's going to end well. You are absolutely right. I just to make it short, I uh, just read an article about um, you know some German uh, handball team just won the European Championship, and there was an article on an intellectual newspaper, and the guy was bragging about that this was not his victory uh, because they were all Germans in that team, no migrants, and the only foreigner was. Uh, the trainer and he is from Iceland and that doesn't count. So 
I can could go on with dozens of those examples, but my question is, how does that come, or where does that come from? And I, um, I do not No, forget understand. that. I'm sorry. I, I, I do we, not under, hang on. I, we already talked about the origins of it. I guess the final thing we need to talk about is, is what to do, right? Where to go. Where are you, okay. Frank, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go where this mad delusion is not all prevalent and all powerful? Correct. There's nowhere. Well, I know, maybe Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe because, uh, of course, they had the mad delusion of communism and also they have enough historical realism to remember the degree to which Muslims were trying to take over their country over the past 1400, well, not quite 1400, but long time, many, many centuries. And so in Eastern Europe, there's a certain amount of race and cultural and religious realism that uh, gives them some defense. Europe is starting to kick back, like they're starting to uh, threaten um, Greece with uh, economic isolation if Greece keeps letting all of these um, migrants go go through Greece. So uh, there is going to be some kickback in Europe. Um, but where where are you going to... You can't, I don't know where you can run to anywhere in Europe, right? I mean, you, you go to London. London is... Uh, is a, my, whites are a minority in London now. I mean, where are you going to go where this delusion of uh, all races are biologically identical and the only difference is environment and racism from white people, where are you going to go in the world where you want to go where that's not going to be everywhere? Yeah, well, so... So that's basically your argument... Um, try to stay put, try to argue with people, try to bring up the reasons and uh, somehow live through all of, all of this. Did I get you correctly? No, I, d I just asked where can you go? I didn't give you anything else. Maybe there's some place you know that maybe Iceland, I don't know, maybe there is some place where this politically correct religion is not uh, the theocracy we're all trapped in. Yeah, Polish are doing quite all right, but um, I have great Polish neighbors who came from Poland to work here, so they have an economical problem. New Zealand is a great place. I have a friend of mine who was living there, but um, it's the end of the world. You cannot immigrate very easily, and um, they came back because it was really, you know, like they lived in Christchurch, and this was hit by earthquakes five years ago and still not uh, built back up. So there's Australia left. So it's, and you know, Australia and New Zealand is quite a stretch from here. So where do you go? That's uh, that's a very tough question. And um, like I said, uh, my wife is already complaining if she needs 45 minutes to uh, car ride to go to her parents. So um, I'm and uh, listen, 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 yeah. Frank. Look, yeah. you you need to start. We need to start leaning on women's love for us. Like, I'm sorry. Like, you need like, you need to start saying, "Look, I mean, if 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 this like Angela Merkel is saying, well, you know, when the Middle East is stabilized, everyone should go back. Now, when is the Middle East going to be stabilized? Well, if we accept the biological arguments for racial differentiations, the answer is no time soon. But even if it were to happen tomorrow, do you think the migrants are going to want to go back? No, they've got a great gig in Germany. They get uh, fantastic welfare benefits, uh, free health care. Uh, they get, as you say, to travel first class. Well, why the hell would they want to go back to some mud hut in Africa? I mean, they're not going to want to go back. 
it's a lot easier to pour food coloring into water than to pull it out again, right? So they're not going to want to, um, they're not going to want to go back. And uh, so either they're going to start kicking indoors and dragging people out and shipping them off, which is going to be horrendous and traumatizing and brutal. And of course, everyone's going to blame the people enforcing the rules rather than everyone who lied about biological compatibility between opposite uh, cultures and ethnicities. But um, if it does continue to escalate, right, let's say that there's some big attack in Europe, right? I mean, uh, we know that uh, culturalization doesn't work because it was all second generation migrants who have been um, doing all of this. And let's say, let's say that uh, there's some big attack in Europe and the governments react as Europeans, you know, they're, as I said before, British people, and this applies to a lot of Europeans, they're really, really nice until they're not. And that is, when, when the world hasn't seen that for a while, they forget that, you know, British people, there's a lot of Chamberlain trying to appease and trying to make peace and trying to avoid war. There's a lot of Chamberlain until there's Churchill, who will bomb the living shit out of you uh, and, and make your grandchildren uh, glow and be born with shrapnel in their spines. So with Europeans, there's a lot of accommodation and uh, we'll not have any in-group preferences and we'll try our very best uh, to make things go better until there is not. And so if there is going to be a big attack in Europe or if something, uh, what's either there's going to be a big attack in Europe or there is going to... Um, uh, be uh, running out of money. There's no no money, right? You run out of money, and uh, you know the the way that um, ethnic peace has been kept in America, and maybe this is the case in Europe as well. But the way that ethnic peace has been kept in America is through uh, state redistribution of power, and when that runs out, right, when, when the welfare runs out and when the government has to cut back, like why doesn't, why doesn't the government in America want to cut government jobs? Because there are a lot of minorities in those government jobs, which is artificially propping up minorities' income. And if they fire a bunch of uh, government workers, they'll be firing a whole bunch of minorities. And that, what's the point? Let's go on welfare or some other, you know, unemployment insurance. And that's true for all groups. But um, it is going to take a lot of money out of minority communities if the government cuts back on its uh, employment uh, of, of minorities, particularly why haven't they privatized the post office? Because a huge number of blacks work in the post office and that would uh, lower or consider to be bad for minorities. But eventually you run out of money. And when you run out of money, you start to get riots. You start to get all of this kind of stuff. Like what happens uh, to these no-go zones, these Sharia-encased no-go no-go biospheres of fairly chilly Middle Eastern countries in Europe? What happens when the welfare state runs out of money? Well, you're going to have uprisings. You're going to have lootings. You're going to have cars overturned. You're going to have like all kinds of god-awful stuff happening. And then what's going to happen? What's going to happen is the men are going to be called up to fight. And th this is what men need to really get across to people. It's like, it's not, I don't, racist, who, I, I'd rather not think a goddamn thing about racist. And in a free society, you wouldn't really have to, right? But what I would like for people to do, yourself and everyone else, you go to your wife and say, oh, I'm sorry, is it inconvenient for you that we might have to move or might have to change where it is that we live? Well, it's going to be kind of inconvenient for me if I end up being drafted to find some god-awful door-to-door, no uniform civil war because there's been some attack or there are uprisings because the welfare gravy train is coming to an end. 
right? That, that's kind of like, at some point, men have to say, no, this is too risky for me. I'm not going to be a disposable male. I am not going to be somebody whose interests are going to be sacrificed until I have to supposed to sacrifice myself because nobody listened to me for many years. Who has the fine radar for coming war? Men. Why? Because men have biologically evolved that way because men are the ones who are first thrown into the fires of war as if there's so many disposable lead soldiers. So you have to say to people, look, if there's going to be some significant conflict coming up, and it's most likely that there will be unless we act proactively, you know, you can say to the women, well, you are not going to be called up. You know, this idea that especially you know, young women, well, yeah, we're going to we're going to make them subject to the draft is like, well, they'll just go get pregnant, <laughs> right? And then you won't be able to draft them. And there you go. Um, so it, it is going to be men who are going to have to bear the brunt of this. And this is why for me, why, you know, start calling on people's love. And, and if your wife is like, well, it's kind of inconvenient. Well, it's kind of inconvenient for me if there's a war because a civil war, because I'm going to be the one who's going to be drafted. And so, you know, maybe you can see your way past your own titular selfishness and look at what is actually going to be good for me. Now, the fact that you're living, what, 200 meters from a migrant area and you have a little girl. Well, OK, she's very, very little. It's probably not a big problem yet. But, you know, one of the challenging things about Islam, of course, is that uh, Muhammad uh, married a nine-year-old girl. The founder of the religion married a nine-year-old girl. Now, my understanding is that according to the stories, he did wait until she was 12 to consummate the marriage, to put it as, as nicely as humanly possible. But uh, that's the founder of the religion. And a lot of people have a very tough time saying that what the founder of the religion did was abhorrent and immoral. Uh, and so until that reformation occurs, uh, that is uh, really a significant part of the Islamic uh, faith, that this was the most morally perfect person uh, who sexually penetrated a 12-year-old girl. So that is a challenge as your daughter goes uh, 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 grows older. And that would be something you don't have to leave Germany. But I think being that close to a migrant center might not be the very best uh, thing in the world. You mentioned a guy from Vienna. Uh, I'm sure you've read this story. It just came out uh, a couple of days ago that Austrian police have confirmed that an Iraqi refugee was arrested over the rape of a 10-year-old boy at a swimming pool in Vienna in December. He told the police he did it due, due to a, quote, sexual emergency. Local media reported citing the interrogation record. Chief Inspector Roman Hustlinger said, a complaint was filed over the rape of a 10-year-old boy in a swimming pool. We determined the suspect is a 20-year-old man who lived in Vienna. He was arrested and later sent to such and such prison. The suspect is an Iraqi citizen who lives in Vienna and has refugee status. The attack took place in a swimming pool cubicle on December 2nd. The man, whose name has not been disclosed, dragged the boy into the changing room and assaulted him. After the boy told the lifeguard about what happened, the police were immediately called. They managed to apprehend the attacker in the pool, who, to their amazement, instead of fleeing the crime scene, was having fun by jumping from a three-meter board. The boy suffered severe internal injuries and was admitted to a children's hospital. Um, the perpetrator who came to Austria via the Balkans on September 13th confessed to the police he had acted because of a sexual emergency. When asked if such actions were legal in his home country, he admitted he knew that such acts were forbidden in any country of the world. Now, the, um, the mother has said that she uh, regrets uh, 
saying to her boy that uh, the migrants uh, are needy and should be given all the help that imaginable and so on. Um, so again, this is of course not to characterize everyone from the Middle East or all the migrants and so on, but um, this is not a hugely isolated uh, incident. Uh, and uh, these people are uh, very traumatized as well. And trauma produces dysfunction in adults, particularly when it comes from a culture not wildly dedicated to self-knowledge. So, um, you know, because all you are is, is you're talking about the inconvenience that some of your unease has to others. Well, I would say that um, they better start thinking about the inconvenience it might pose to you should push come to significant shelf. Now, where to go? Um, where are you going to go? I mean, I, personally, I'm a stand and fight kind of guy. And um, I think that abandoning Germany at this point is uh, premature. Uh, and, um, so I would say that it's probably worth standing and fighting and the fighting is not on Facebook. The fighting is in your own, uh, personal relationships. You know, it's hard for men to overcome our tendency to pathological altruism, self-sacrifice and not trying, not, not having anyone else be inconvenienced by our preferences. You know, like I remember, I think I was in my early to mid thirties, no early thirties. I think I was in a relationship with a woman and I was just accommodating and accommodating. And I just remember thinking at one point, like, wow, I really should have some of my own needs here. And I've talked about this, uh, how a man's heart is murdered. The degree to which men are just there to accommodate others, don't upset people, particularly women, uh, and all that. It is um, hard for men. And we've been very much socialized to not have our own needs and not have our own preferences. This idea that there's some sort of patriarchy where men get to do whatever they want and all of our needs are sacrificed is, is just a myth invented so people can legitimate their hatred of uh, men. But um, uh, I would say have your needs and, and talk about your concerns and don't have people just talk you out of them. Say, no, this is important. And you can say it's important to me as opposed to you who might be older or a woman because you're not going to be called up. But if it does get as, as violent uh, in Europe as it has been for 1,400 years in the Middle East, well, you know, it's fine for you if you're not going to get called up. I can get why you're not worried about it. But how, being, how about being worried on my behalf? So I'm going to end with this poem called The Wrath of the Awakened Saxon by Rudyard Kipling. And uh, this, of course, is about, I guess, slightly more of the British side of things. But this is um, an important thing for the world to remember. Uh, this is uh, somebody who did know British culture um, and European culture very well. And uh, I'm just going to move on to the next caller after this. But please keep us uh, posted about what you decide, Frank. I'm certainly curious and I appreciate the conversation. So this is The Wrath of the Awakened Saxon. It was not part of their blood. It came to them very late. With long arrears to make good when the Saxon began to hate. They were not easily moved, they were icy, willing to wait, till every count should be proved ere the Saxon began to hate. Their voices were even and low, their eyes were level and straight. There was neither sign nor show when the Saxon began to hate. It was not preached to the crowd. It was not taught by the state. No man spoke it aloud when the Saxon began to hate. It was not suddenly bred. It will not swiftly abate. 
through the chilled years ahead, when time shall count from the date that the Saxon began to hate. Now, you abuse a group long enough, the blowback is extraordinary and sudden and shocking and surprising. You know, like the guy who beats up his wife who suddenly wakes up with his penis in the front yard and her looking shocked and stared at the bloody scissors in her hand. So those who make conversations impossible make escalation inevitable. And um, so I appreciate you calling in. Uh, Everybody needs to be aware of that, that we are trying as much as humanly possible to avoid such escalations, but that can only be done through facts and conversation. All right. Who do we have up next? All right. Up next today is Austin. Austin wrote in and said, I represent a recently established classical liberal party in Norway called the Capitalist Party. We've managed to mobilize a rapidly growing and diverse party of freedom-oriented people. Our consistent growth as a young party is unprecedented here in Norway. What value, if any, do you recognize in utilizing channels within the political system to proliferate rational ideas and classical liberalism? That's from Austin. Well, hello, Austin. How you doing? Hi, how are you? Well, thanks. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I should make a, a correction there. The, the question was misread. I didn't personally uh, establish the party. I represent the party that was established uh, here. Okay. So tell us a little bit about this party, where we can find it on the web, uh, what the platform is, if you don't mind. Yeah, not at all. So uh, the the party in, in Norwegian language is called uh, Liberalistina, um, and that uh, literally translates to uh, the liberalists. Um, our website is liberalistina.org, uh, but our official English name is the Capitalist Party. Now, our platform is is of classical liberalism, uh, individual freedom, smaller state, uh, existing through voluntary and peaceful means where the individual has complete autonomy uh, over themselves and over the decisions they make, so so far as those decisions don't violate the freedom and liberty of a fellow citizen. Right. And then as far as economics and, go, uh, it's yeah, go free market, um, laissez-faire capitalism, Austrian school of economics. And how long has the party been around? So we were established officially uh, in October of 2014. Um, Since then, uh, we are at this point the fastest growing party in Norway. Uh, We just reached a a milestone of of exceeding 1,000 members, which uh, to put that in perspective, Norway has a population of just over 5 million people. Uh, And like I said, we've, we've only been in existence for just over a year. So to accumulate that amount of of members. Now, bear in mind, those are donating members um, to reach that milestone of over a thousand in such a short period of time is unprecedented here. And uh, and so, we, we, as I said, we are a very quickly maturing and, and fastest growing party in Norway at this All right. stage. And to what do you ascribe the success of the party? Well, what we've managed to do is to... Uh, as you probably are aware, in, within the classical liberalism uh, way of thinking and that principle, you do have a lot of different sects in, in uh, objectivism, for example, libertarianism, uh, anarcho-capitalists, um, secular libertarians, Christian libertarians. And uh, what we've managed to do is instead of trying to appeal to one of those and getting no progress achieved whatsoever, uh, we, start, we, we have the broad platform 
where we are, are all in agreement that the best way forward is to achieve individual freedom with a minimal state, where the state's uh, only, uh, only uh, mission or only objective or, or task is to protect the individual uh, from violence or fraud or being violated from another individual. Anything outside of that is not within the government's uh, uh, purview. And so that's that's the, the foundation of the party. So in that, we've united uh, a lot of uh, freedom or, or liberty-oriented uh, people, if you will. Right. And and to give it uh, and to give that, I mean, uh, Norway is a country, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, a, a lot of Scandinavia is very entrenched into the socialist uh, left-wing way of, of thinking. So we are tasked, of course, with an uphill battle here uh, as we face, why, you know, in, in lack of a better word, indoctrination from very young age. So a lot of our members... Oh, that's a great word. I mean, it's perfectly apt. Yeah, so a, a lot of our members, actually, when they come to the party or they stumble across it or, or they, they see us on social media, uh, another avenue, for, just to give you an example of our party's um, growth, uh, we have amongst, if not the, then amongst the highest engagement on social media than any party in the country. So we're very active and very engaged um, with getting getting our platform out there. So w what happens is a lot of times members will, will stumble across one post or or uh, stumble across our website or, or discuss something with somebody where the conversation leads to the idea of class liber uh, classical liberalism. And They've never heard of it. They've never been introduced to this way of thinking. They've never been introduced to free market way of thinking, to um, Austrian school of economics, to uh, what a world would actually look like with a minimal state and with a minimal government. And the idea that you are a competent person who's capable of managing yourself and managing the decisions that you want to make autonomously. Right. Now, um, this may be a, an unfair question, but I think it's an important one. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so let's say you guys get into power tomorrow, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you have control of the executive, the legislative, or whatever. Uh, what would you do um, with, uh, with, with that power? What would your implementation plan be to give this um, anarchist um, society a, a good shot? So as a party, of course, we, we're realistic. We understand completely that if you know, let's say hypothetically, we came into power, uh, we, we, our party, you know, started, was the majority in parliament. Uh, and we, we had uh, free, free reign to, to make what we want to make happen. We fully understand that, that this way of, of governing and this, this platform is something that has to be achieved through a scaffolding strategy. It can't happen overnight, right? Uh, the, the welfare state and in Norway, um, is, is arguably far more severe and extreme than the other uh, fellow Scandinavian countries where the welfare state is cradle to grave welfare. And it's very entrenched into the way uh, people view their society and, and view uh, how they're going to live their lives. And so we understand that this, this platform and these policies of minimizing the state, diminishing the state, decreasing the bureaucracy, decreasing the welfare state, deregulating the market, uh, these types of things, they're not going to happen overnight. It's a scaffolding strategy. Uh, so th does that answer your question? Or your... No, I got to tell you, that's a perfect political answer because 
you you absolutely completely walked around the question without answering it. I said, what would you do? And you said, not only did you not tell me what you would do, you told me that you wouldn't do it at some point in the future and not right away or would do something at some point in the future. You said, I said, well, what would you do if you gained power? Well, we'd, we'd do it later, <laughs> whatever it would be. Right? You didn't actually no, tell me what you do, right? It wouldn't be doing it later. It would be starting to dismantle the overgrown state in, in a in a no, I, I get that. That's very abstract, right? It's like, how are you going to build this building? Well, it's going to be tall. Okay, how are you going to build it? It's going to have an elevator. Okay, <laughs> how are you going to build it, right? So Fair give enough. me what, what what the plan is. Would you um, would you cut welfare? Uh, would you, um, like, how would this actually work? Fair enough. Yeah, so uh, just to give me an example, as kind of a, a test run, we uh, we were able to run in the Oslo municipal elections, Oslo being the capital of the country. And um, so our specific platform there for, for specifics, if we were to be elected, which wasn't something that we were expecting at that time, being so young. Um, but of course, we had a platform prepared or, or a policy prepared to what we would be doing if we were elected in that municipal election. Uh, some of the first things we'd be addressing, of course, is taxation and the welfare state, right? Uh, just to give you an idea, the, the housing market in Norway is is artificially inflated. Uh, the government has a very strict control on what can be built, where it can be built. And with that, of course, the, the value of homes is artificially increased. Um, so a big part of that is dereg deregulating the housing market and the way the tax structure is working uh, so that people are allowed to develop what they want to develop without the restriction of the state. I mean, that's just an example of something uh, that we've actually on a platform or policy that we ran on when we were in the election last year. So you would um, reduce zoning or restrictions on home ownership, right? Home, home creation, home building. Yes, which would cause home values to drop considerably, right? Again, these are types of things that would be happening in a scaffolding strategy. It's not something that we're going to pull the rug out. Okay, scaffolding is not a magic word that eliminates cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this would be frank. I mean, you would either put it in so slowly that who cares, or you'd put it in fast enough that people's home values would, would crash, right? Would, uh, or, or would go down considerably. I mean, you know this, and I'm not trying to corner you. I'm just like these are political. Re you can't be afraid to talk about things with people. Have, have no has people learned nothing from Donald Trump? No, no, be afraid. That, like, don't be afraid to talk about the negative short term consequences of what you're doing. I mean, no, this no, is and, reality, and, right? and that's a fair point. And, and the reality of it is, the writing is on the wall uh, in Europe, right? The writing is on the wall for these types of economies. Oh no, no, don't don't start abstracting me, bro. I'm I, talking I'm not, about specific I, stuff I, here. Don't give me writing on the wall. I'm talking about home prices, okay? I, so if, if, home if, values. You'd let, if you'd let me finish, I, uh, I wasn't going to give you an abstract there. Uh, to okay. give you an example, the writing is on the wall where I was going with that in Europe, where these economies are collapsing, right? One of the, uh, there are very few differences between the other European countries and Norway. Norway, what differs it, what sets it apart from the other European countries is that it relies on an oil, uh, an oil industry, an energy industry, right? That, that's it. It, it. That's pretty much it. Um, the, the large swath of the revenue that the government gets is from the oil industry and the economy is dependent upon the oil industry there's not any uh innovative production that comes there's it's it's the okay, wealth. dude, dude, you got to get you got to get to an answer here. I know you're in politics, but y you know, I said don't abstract me, and you just give me more abstractions. I get it. There's a lot of oil revenue from the government. Now, what does that have to do with housing? 
So no, I wasn't tying that into housing. What I'm saying is that, of course, eventually with these types of policies, if they're not handled the right way, then of course there will be a collapse. There will be a housing market crash. There will be a price crash. There, these things will collapse. Uh, but as we're seeing throughout Europe and throughout a lot of the Western world, these collapses are inevitable. Uh, the, these types of policies, Keynesian style economics, do not function in a long term, and it and it, it dips and it goes back up and dips and it goes back up, uh, and that's through artificial inflation. Now, I wasn't tying the energy market into the housing market. What I'm saying is, what differs Norway? So, if you're saying talk real or talk real in that way, then yes, if they're not handled correctly, then it, there will be a crash that 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 would be uh, uh, severe for a lot of people to face. But then you said, if it goes so slow, then who cares? I, you're, I think you're you're trying to pit it in one extreme to the other. Okay, that that you'll you, when you listen back to this, you'll understand why I'm grinding the heels of my hands into my eyeballs here. Okay, I'm going to continue like that detour to nowhere never occurred because the reality is that if you're going to open up more housing uh, than the the price of of housing, right, supply and demand, right, you can increase the supply of houses, re- reduce restrictions on building houses, and therefore uh, housing uh, prices are going to go down. Now, of course, that has a huge problem uh, in America and caused a big economic dislocation when the prices of housing went down. A lot of people who were the marginal, right, they they only had uh, just enough money to get by in their housing. And when the price of their housing went down, uh, it became a big problem in that their houses were what was called underwater. They were because the mortgages are fixed when they bought the house. And if the value of the house is going down, a lot of people's nest eggs is going to occur. Also, when housing prices go down, uh, people can, I assume, uh, where you are in Norway, can can put in for a reassessment, right? So they say, well, I'm paying 2% or whatever it is uh, in property taxes, but my house value has gone down. And therefore, there's going to be a significant reduction in revenue through uh, property taxes, right? So there's going to be uh, people who can't afford their houses. So at the same time as new houses are being built, some proportion of the existing housing market is going to go on the market, uh, of the houses are going to go on the market because people can no longer afford them. And that does create a significant, again, as the housing, as more housing go, comes on the market, the value of housing goes down, which means fewer people can afford their houses. So more houses come on the market. And um, my particular preference is just to say to people up front, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be painful. It's going to be quick. You know, you don't want the Band-Aid coming off slow. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. You know, like if, if we've been addicted to the welfare state for two generations, think of two generations of cocaine addicts coming off the drug. It's going to be unpleasant. I think own the downside. Don't don't tart it up. Everybody knows when you're dissembling. Everybody knows when you're not answering the question. This is why, I mean, uh, out of many reasons why I don't go into politics, because I just tell people the truth. Yeah, you you guys, you wanted the power of the state to keep your home prices high because it protects the value of your investment. The unfortunate thing is it's using violence of the state to enhance your own income, and it's unjust, unfair, and immoral. So we're going to take away all those restrictions, and the value of your house is going to go down. You're going to be stuck with a high mortgage. Maybe you can renegotiate something with the bank. Maybe you can't, but you've had this unjust income uh, by driving up the price of houses using the power of the state. You've got to let that go. And uh, yeah, some of you aren't going to be able to afford the uh, the homes that you're in because the value is going to go down. And that's the price of using the power of the state to try to enhance your own income. Sorry, you know, the slave owners had to sell their slaves and sometimes they didn't get a market price for them. But, you know, if you're involved in something that's fundamentally wrong and destructive to the next generation, you know, it's great for you guys to have high 
uh, home price is great for your retirement, but how the hell does this allow us to have a sustainable society? Because you guys have these high home prices, which is great for your savings and your assets. But the problem is that young people don't want to have kids because they can't afford to bring them up in any kind of style or any kind of reasonably large accommodation or reasonably sized accommodation. So you're preying on the younger generation. You want the younger generation to pay for your uh, retirement, because there's no money left in the retirement savings plans. You want the young to pay for your retirement, but at the same time, you're driving up the price of houses by restricting new housing growth, which means that the young people don't want to have kids, which means that the whole system, the whole Ponzi scheme is going to come crashing to the ground. So you made your money, you had your fun, uh, funds over, we got to get back to reality here. Yeah, and, and there's no doubt in, in, in the the scenario that you're describing here is a lot of that is it's throughout Scandinavia where the older generation has they got established in their business they got established in their assets they got established in their wealth and then as time progressed they were voting these policies into place that were protecting that wealth and protecting those assets protecting their capital and then of course punishing the younger generation as they come up and you can see that of course in the birth rates for example as you mentioned uh, the younger generation don't want to have children as they get older because they can't bring them up into the same world that their parents brought them up into um, so of course yeah listen there's this, this sorry there's this belief that if you demand sacrifice from people they'll hate you bullshit <laughs> history shows repeatedly that if you if you say to people you're bad you're wrong you did wrong things and now it's time to pay the price most people will just buckle down and they probably feel secretly relieved about it in in some way, yes, I, I can definitely see what you're saying, and and uh, I didn't mean to give the impression that I was skirting around a specific answer. There. There's no doubt that with a uh, radical or, or or strong deconstruction of the welfare state or the housing market regulations, um, taxes, fees, uh, the duties that are, it, there's no doubt with the deconstruction of these uh, of these structures uh, that are in place and so so entrenched into the way the society functions that there is going to be a turbulent uh, a period of time there um, but I'll have to agree with you in what you said earlier that facing that is one thing but also acknowledging the fact that if it's if it's done correctly if the destruction deconstruction happens in a in a in a fashion that's organized then it is going to be short wait 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 what do you mean what what do you you keep you scaffolding organized managed what does this mean what, what, how do you how do you organize liberalizing like the housing market? Do you just look? Do you say, look, we're, we're getting rid of zoning. We're getting rid of restrictions. You can build uh, what you want, uh, where you want it. Uh, how, how do you manage that? Because as soon as you start talking managing, you're back into Keynesian territory. I thought you guys were free market people. Yeah, no, I don't mean what I mean. And, and of course, there has to be a transition period where you're you, you can't pull the rug out from the people overnight. You know, these aren't things you can't. just. Why? Why? Hang on. Why? 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 <laughs> the, the the system. I mean, you're not going to. We no, listen, a, listen. We live in listen, a social. We live in a social. Drafted, men, men get drafted into war with twelve minutes notice. Sometimes, like, don't give me this crap that people can't handle these transitions. Are you trying to tell me women can't? Men certainly been expected to handle these transitions throughout history. W are you saying women can't handle these transitions? Men sure as hell can. No, but the fact is, you have to. You have to. Norway is a social democracy, and you have to face that because it's a social democracy. You, you, the moment you come into power, you start taking away everything overnight that that uh, the people have have embraced for so long. There's no that's that's a short term that's a short term structure there because there's no way that you're going to be reelected the next time around if you take away something from everyone. There's just no way. It has to happen in a transitional period where people can. Uh, learn to accept the idea as it happens in that transitioning period. It can't happen overnight because 
okay, so you got uh, you you come into into government for your first term. You you make an effort in a parliamentary system, which would never work in a parliamentary system. You make an effort to deconstruct everything overnight. Let's say you did. Let's say you came in. You had ninety percent of the parliament. Uh, you deconstructed everything overnight. There's just that, that's a short term solution because the. The period of that short-term period is going to have such dire consequences for people, perceived dire consequences, I should say, uh, perceived dire consequences for people, that there's no way that they're going to reelect you the next time around. All they're going to do is reelect the people who are going to bring back what they had in the first place and make it exponentially worse. So it has to happen in a period of time. It has to happen in a transitioning period of time where people learn to understand what the consequences of these decisions are, positive and whatever they perceive to be negative, but understand and and embrace that that structure. Okay, so so men can handle massive changes like being I'm drafted. Not, I'm not saying that this but, is a gender you, who, so which issue. group so men can handle these kinds of changes, but which which groups in society can't? I mean, men, men are certainly expected to handle these kinds of changes, right? So which groups in society do you think couldn't handle it? I, I didn't specify a, a specific group or gender or ethnicity that couldn't handle the transition. I'm speaking – Norway, Scandinavia in general, but Norway in particular is a very homogenous um, society. I mean more or less homogenous. I mean of course as you have this influx of refugees and influx of, of um, uh, immigration coming into European countries, uh, but still more or less a homogenous country. So I'm not specifying here men or women or white or black or – Arab uh, or, or any okay so so your theory your theory that people can't handle big transitions is historically not the case I mean societies have handled transitions from peacetime to total wartime in a matter of weeks or months mm -hmm. uh, so this you know the societies can handle massive transitions if people understand the okay, moral requirement situation you have to discern between a uh, uh, when you talk about wartime, for example, that's involuntary. You, you, you transition because you don't have a choice. You either adapt or you die. Uh, in a situation no, but, but where if you don't like the wartime thing, you can talk about the peacetime thing, right? So uh, you had uh, millions of, of people coming back from wars, uh, which is a huge transition in society uh, in the post-war period. And uh, the, the society handled it uh, fine, right? Again, you have to discern between that's whether you're coming back from war or going into war. Those are two involuntary uh, transitions that you have to make. You either adapt or you don't. In a situation where you're electing a party to deconstruct a system that you've been indoctrinated to believe is the end-all, be-all of life, that's a voluntary issue that you're opting yourself into. Those are two very different scenarios, and, and, and the parameters that are setting those scenarios are two. Uh, the, the foundation of that is different. You have one that's voluntary and one that's involuntary. One that's, that is violently a, a violent onset of a sequence of events, i.e. war, i.e. coming out of war, versus going to the voting booth and picking who you want to be, be your leader. Well, Canada cut welfare in entire departments in the 90s, and uh, it was fine. I mean, people just basically, and they've done this where in America, they cut welfare and people are like, okay, I'll just go back to work. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily, and this is just my opinions, right? I mean, but there's good examples behind what it is that I'm saying. I wouldn't, because everyone who gets into politics wants to do things in some relatively not painful manner. And, and this doesn't seem to work. The, the longer it takes, the more compromises you're going to have to make. And what you're doing by delaying it is you're saying 
well, it's a pretty bad thing to do, so we're going to spread out the pain. It's like, no, it's it's a good thing to do. And the fact that it hurts people, so what? I mean, I don't understand. Like, I mean, I, when I was a kid growing up, uh, nobody said to me, well, you know, are you really satisfied with the quality of your education? Do you feel like uh, uh, it's really great for you? And it's been huge changes that men have been supposed to accept, like no-fault divorce. Like, you, women can just, you know, you can be a great husband and, and they can just decide to divorce you because some hot chiseler moved in down the block or something like that. So... I think that the concern I have with politics, and again, please understand, I'm not a politician and never will be, but the concern I have with politics is the amount that you have to say, I'm sorry, we have some terrible medicine for you. It's going to be really horrible, but we're going to space it out to make it really long and drawn out. But in politics, if you act decisively, you can get something done. But if you draw it out, then you just invite the opposition and you look weak. You're saying, well, and you, you're talking about your population as if they're weak as well. Like, you know, I, this is a Harry Brown thing I've mentioned before where somebody was calling into his radio show years ago saying, well, if we privatize education, it's going to be a mess. And he's like, ah, maybe for a week. People will set up schools in their garages. You know, human beings can adapt to changes in war and changes in technology, changes to peacetime, changes in family court systems, in the entire structure of, of marriage and, and all of that. We're, we're nothing if not adaptable. And I'm concerned that if you're going to take it slow, you're going to invite yourself up for pushback. Here's another question I have with regards to uh, Norway. Um, so in Singapore, 6.35% of people work for the government, right? And, and um, the, uh, the three lowest countries, there's, there's only three countries in the world that have less than 10% of the population working for the government. And that's Japan, Singapore, and Taiwan. Yes, they are the high IQ countries, I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't know what it is in, <laughs> in uh, Israel, but of course, that's uh, Sephardim as well as um, Ashkenazi Jews there. Anyway, so um, Sweden is uh, the top, uh, the, the, the most government workers in the world in, in Sweden. 33.87% uh, of people um, work for uh, work for the government. Do you happen to know what it is in Norway? Uh, to be honest, with you, I, I'm not. Uh, I, I it's okay. I mean, I, why I, would you? Yeah, you can't know every fact. No, I want to. I want to say question. that that it is around thirty percent. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly. Yeah, bang on, man. Twenty nine point two five percent. We won't penalize you for the point seven five percent because your guess is certainly better than mine. <laughs> so in Norway, you know, close to one out of three people are working for the government. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so what are you going to do with those people? Because I guess in a minarchist society, you'd want to get it below 1%, right? Well, ideally speaking, yes, as small as you can get it. Uh, sure. In, 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 of course. But uh, in regards to your question, okay, so what do you do with those people? people? Yeah, millions of people who are, who are going to get fired, right? Yeah, but the premise of the question implies that that uh, that there is something for a government to do for those people. I mean, what, what is it? I guess what I'm getting at here is, is if you're going into government with the idea of, of de deconstructing the state itself, deconstructing the bureaucracy, and of course, uh, making these once government-employed people now unemployed, uh, you're going on the platform of being classical liberals. You are going on the platform of... Uh, the least amount of government intervention possible. So by that uh, very thought alone, it, it, it would be for them to decide what they want to do with their own lives. 
okay, that's all very nice, but you haven't answered the question of what is it that you will do? Will you fire them? Well, I mean, of course, when, when you're getting rid of the bureaucracies and when you're, de- when, when you're doing this, of course, I mean, the, <laughs> that's what happens. You have to fire the people that are, are a part of these bureaucracies. Okay, no, that's fine. Do they, do they have contracts that preclude them from being fired? Oh, absolutely. In Norway, it's very, very, very difficult to actually fire someone. And this, again, comes back into, I know you don't like this word now, but the scaffolding strategy. I mean, this this can't happen overnight. Of course, in Norway, once you are hired onto a full-time uh, permanent contract position, it, it is extremely difficult for you to lose that job. So you can't fire most of the government workers, is that right? Maybe you could lay them off. And layoffs are handled kind of differently. I don't know, you know, but I, I don't know, obviously, the law anywhere, let alone in Norway. But if you can't fire the government workers who are a third of the workers, it seems that getting to minarchism is impossible, isn't it? Well, to say that it's impossible would mean that it's impossible to change the law. Uh, again, like I said, it, it's not something that can happen overnight. These are policies that you'd have to well, change. Well, no, no, hang on. Uh, I don't, but I don't know if changing the law allows you to invalidate past contracts, if that makes sense. Like, that would be retroactive. I don't think you can invalidate a contract that okay. was signed last year by yeah. changing the law in the future. Exactly. Maybe I should back up there. No one has a contract for life, right? No one has a contract that says, okay, you're hired, you're, you're now employed. Everyone has to come up for a contract renewal. Um, so, of course, you know, you can't come to power on a guy who signed his contract six months ago. It says, uh, you know, has all of these um, safeties in place. Okay, so him. sorry to interrupt. So let, let's say in, in five years, I, I apologize for these interruptions. Let's say that in five years, a bunch of contracts come up or, or three years or whatever it is, right? And so what you would be doing is you would be uh, ripping out job protection clauses from all of these contracts, right? That would be the goal. Is that right? Yeah, in, in, in terms of the state, absolutely. Okay. And what what do you think the unions would do in and the union workers, um, what do you think they would do if basically they knew that you were getting rid of their tenure, that, that you were getting rid of their protections, and, and they knew what your government policy and program and goal was? Uh, what do you think that the government workers would do uh, knowing that the next step would be them uh, getting fired after after you renegotiate it? Well, I mean, and of course, we're, we're, we're talking in very hypothetical terms now. Uh, no, 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 we're not. We're talking your exact implementation. We're not talking hypothetical. You want to fire a lot of government workers that are covered under contract. You can't do it legally without renegotiating the contract. They know that you'll be renegotiating the contract in order to fire them. So how desperate are government workers well, to cling on to their benefits and their all, job security? Yeah, all of which is by definition hypothetical, right? We haven't achieved this yet or, or come anywhere near it. And uh, for the question as what they would do, of course, the unions would go on strike. I mean, uh, obviously they would, but they would also see us coming from a mile away. The unions in Norway are very are well established and very wealthy and powerful organizations uh, and uh, would see us coming from a mile away. And I'm sure that their campaigns would begin uh, if they saw us as uh, as rising at a pace or a rate that was to their discomfort would probably go out of their way to make sure that they did their their best to to prevent that from happening. Uh, but okay, so what they would do is they would go on strike, um, and they would block the roads, and they would try to um, stop the 
economic life of the nation until they got what they wanted. Like they would literally uh, refuse to process things which people found necessary. Uh, and they would also park their cars in the middle of the street and they would block up traffic and, and they would do as much as humanly possible to prevent the economic life of the nation continuing until they got what they wanted. I, I mean, uh, you're, you're pretty much describing the nature of, of every union in this in this predicament. Well, certainly government unions in particular, right? Sure, yeah. Because, because private unions have a contract with a corporation, and if the corporation goes out of business, the contract is null and void. But that's not the case with government unions in particular. So if your um, economy is paralyzed because of striking government workers, then what? If our uh, – sorry, I mean uh, – then what? I mean, in in what regard? I mean, again, we're going, we're, we're discussing this on the premise that if we were coming to power, that we are coming to power on a on a platform of non-intervention, uh, classical liberal party. Um, no, I'm I'm asking you what you do to achieve your platform. And look, I'm 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 telling you this, or I'm asking you these questions. These are all questions that I asked myself when I was facing that fork in the road about what to do with my intellectual gifts and my speaking abilities and looking at politics versus philosophy. And I, I'll not corner you because I don't want to get you in in trouble. But I will tell you the thought process that occurred for me. Uh, just if that if that if that helps. And the thought process that occurred to me was, I said, okay, well, let's say that I want to. Um, privatized education, which I agree with late libertarian presidential candidate Harry Brown, that that's one of the most important things to do, the privatized education. Okay, well, let's just say that you could find some way, if you were in political power, to privatize uh, education, which means, of course, that you'd be reneging on or tearing up or at least renegotiating upon renewal collective bargaining agreements with government unions. Well, uh, the government unions um, are going to, the, the teachers unions are going to go on strike. Now, when the teachers unions go on strike, given how many families, at least in Canada, are two-parent households, uh, that um, cripples your economy because the kids have no place to go. And so one of the parents has to stay home, which means that half your workforce or a third of your workforce in the private sector or even the public sector, for that matter, the non-school sector, is uh, out of commission, which means that uh, companies um, can't function. Um, your tax receipts go down, economic uh, the economy begins to slow down, and so on. And uh, the the teachers are holding the uh, the the economy hostage. And, and then what do you do? Do you force the teachers to go back to work, or do you uh, simply accept that your economy is going to grind to a halt? Your revenues are going to dry up. You're going to be unable to make your obligations for your debt payments. Uh, you're going to be unable to send out checks to people on welfare uh, and uh, people uh, on uh, old age pensions. You're going to be unable to pay doctors. I mean, are you going to let the teachers hold the economy hostage so that they can maintain their um, uh, existing benefits? There's a reason why these benefits continue and why they're so hard to break is that are you going to be willing to order the police to use force to clear the government workers out of the road? Are you going to be willing to use force to compel the teachers to go back into the schools and the bus drivers to pick up the kids and deliver them to the schools. And, and what are you going to do if there's mass disobedience to your use of force? Now, you don't have to answer any of this, and this may not apply to your situation in particular, but these are things that I thought about in great depth and great detail when I was trying to figure out how I could put my abilities to the best service of mankind of the future of, of virtue and, and ethics and all that because i think that things have gotten to such a state 
in terms of the entanglements of 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 contracts and uh, the general belief uh, or entitlement to sort of centered around government workers and so on unless you are willing to do unless you're willing to use a fair amount of force to clear the streets of protesters and so on i don't know how you know the unions are sitting on a big war chest right they can sit out strikes for quite a a long period of time and um your economy your capacity to to have income as a government at all is going to be very crippled by this and what would people do in response i don't know i don't know and i for one would not be somebody who'd say yeah you know go in with whatever it is to to break up these these riots or to break up these sit-ins or to you know get the streets running again and so on uh that would be um a a significant escalation and this is not theoretical i mean we've seen this with uh with workers from time to time so uh that would be you know i I mean i did a whole debate with adam kokesh on political action which people can find on this channel as well but my concern and again i was talking about this with regards to ron paul that um uh, the scenario i could see rolling out if ron paul had tried to privatize the Department of Education is uh, these teachers are out there chanting, going down the highway at two miles an hour, arms interlocked and so on. And uh, what do you do? Do you bring out the the uh, the, the police to, to round them all up and clear off the highways? And then they, they fight back and then the, the police have to bring out their batons. And next thing you know, there's some teacher with a bloodied lip and everyone's saying, this is what libertarian is. This is what libertarianism is. This is what libertarianism does. And this is what you voted for. And this is the kind of destabilization and fascistic stuff that blah, 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 the media and all are going to, where they're going to side, right? So uh, you, please, you don't have to answer any of this because it's an unfair question in some ways to pose to somebody who hasn't really mulled it over. Now, the only other way well, I I'd, think I'd that like, this could I'd, be... I'm sorry. I'd, yeah, go ahead, I'd, go ahead. I'd like to address a little, a, a, a bit of that in the way that in the situation, you're talking about Rand Paul or take our party here in Norway, for example, if we were to a position where we're elected to a position, we we're able to um, deconstruct these types of union uh, agreements so these sort of employment agreements uh, that you know basically uh, per- perpetually or, or con- continuously protect these people from being fired and, and continually protect their uh, benefits and, and whatnot. But in a situation where someone like Ron Paul in the United States or Liberalista here in Norway is elected, that is that is given then that the population has elected us based on the platform that we stand for. And yes, unions do have a big war chest, and especially here in Norway, very well established uh, in entrenched organizations with uh, lots of money and uh, uh, high membership and, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, good political ties, uh, to put it uh, delicately or nicely. Um, but again, electing us on that platform in that situation, it doesn't matter how big their war chest is, these teachers can't strike forever. And I think, again, uh, this is theoretically, but because you can't strike together forever, and just because these teachers have lost their public job doesn't re- render them uh, without skill, doesn't render them without experience, doesn't render them without their own education and, and without uh, what they have to offer. So in this uh, ideal world where there is no public education, there is no uh, public sector having these monopolies over these types of uh, organizations and industries, uh, there's going to be a vacuum for 
people to then uh, entrepreneurs and, and enterprising individuals to come forward with something that fills those vacuums. You remove a system where it protects public sector um, employment, you remove the public sector employment entirely, whichever direction you go in, there is going to be a vacuum for the private sector to fill. And of course, in that situation, that private sector isn't going to be looking to, to hire a new crop of teachers when they've got uh, all these other teachers who've just been put out of a job who know exactly what they're doing and yes as public employees could probably use a, a little bit of um, improvement in, in how they function in the private sector versus the public sector uh, but there is going to be a vacuum there provided uh, that the public sector is is deconstructed and the private sector can then rise through entrepreneur and, and, and uh, free enterprise. No, and I agree with all of that. I mean, obviously, uh, there will be a demand for teachers and so on, but they probably won't get the same deal in the private sector, at least in the short run, than they would in the public sector. And of course, there are a lot of crappy teachers, as there are a lot of crappy uh, government workers in every field, and those crappy teachers will not well, which is exactly what the private sector is, defi- is, is designed to do, right? Uh, it, it, it's designed to weed out the the, the poor, uh, poor quality, bad quality um, aspects of a product, or you know, call it that. Let's call it a product. If we have private sector, you have education, it's going to be a product just like anything else. And um, so, of course, the poor teachers aren't going to be able to get that job in the private sector. But then again, they shouldn't have had a job in the public sector either. So this is exactly what the private sector and, and, and free economy, a free market economy is designed to do, is to give a better service for a lower cost. Will they not get the same benefits and the same paycheck and same everything that they got in the public sector? Well, no, of course they won't. But at the same time, in a public sector world, in the socialist world like we're living in today, uh, it's, it's an inflated, artificially inflated society, right? That, that what they're making now in a public sector I mean, in a private sector situation, once they trans- once they make that transition, uh, the the value, I think you have to consider the value of what that's going to be worth then versus what it's worth now, and and I think there's a, a comparison to be made there. Yeah, and 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 the way it generally works is that when something gets privatized, the good workers make even more money than they did before, and the bad workers make less or get fired. Yeah, and so that. for the good workers, you know, they they want to be free of this stuff, but the bad workers uh, are going to kick up a hell of a fuss and of course or unions are not there to protect work good harder. workers right yeah like, yes and, and uh you know of course our party has nothing to do or has nothing against um unions right uh, where we make oh, yeah i mean of course if you want to voluntary uh, you know come into a union to 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 voice your concerns or or what have you that's perfectly fine um so we're, we're not admonishing the idea of a union, uh, of course not. But uh, either a poor employee, a poor teacher, a poor whatever who is working in the public sector, yes, if if they were doing a poor job or they're a poor quality, a poor standard uh, of uh, production, they're either going to work harder or they're going to fall behind. And as you said, if they're a good worker, good quality, uh, and produce a good product, then yes, of course, they probably will make more than what they were making before. But uh, yeah, so I, yes, I, I'm agreeing with you on that aspect, I guess. Now, uh, single motherhood seems to be quite the thing in in Norway. I was just reading here that in Norway, half of all children are now born to unmarried mothers. Actually, that was 2004, so that's 12 years ago. Um, It's a trend here in Norway. It it is a trend here in Norway. Uh, The the younger generation, um, 
they are it is a trending practice actually to have children prior to getting married if you get married at all uh, but they will uh, there's a word for it in Norwegian which is sambur which um, <laughs> the the closest English translation would be cohabitant but <laughs> which doesn't roommate sound, roommate but the but, sperm mate yeah. right <laughs> but it has a little bit more of a romantic connotation in the Norwegian language but <laughs> that's the closest English word that there probably is um it, it's basically uh, a spouse without a wedding i guess you could say um so yes uh, in regards to that it is a trending thing in the younger generation where they are having children prior to getting married if they do get married at all do you know um, what percentage of uh, Norwegian children are being raised by single moms? And by that, I don't just mean unmarried, but without uh, a live-in man. No, I, I, again, this is obscure stuff. I wouldn't expect you to yeah, know it. I'm just, uh, that that particular number, I, I I would I do not know. No. Right. Well, uh, and and the reason that's important is that um, if you're going to be firing a bunch of women uh, from the government. Um, well, Norway's, the the government workers in Norway, it's dominated by women and especially women with, with children, right? And the more, the more children a woman has, the more likely she is to work for the government because, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's considered to be more family friendly, which means that they've got the government to, uh, replace, uh, the, the husband that used to, uh, provide, uh, for them. So, um, Here's here's the challenge. You know, once you get women dependent on the state, it becomes very hard to reduce the state because reducing the state kicks in men's white knight tendencies, right? (laughs) Because if you start firing a bunch of government workers, you're going to be firing a bunch of single moms or moms, you know, and, and, and who structured their lives around the flexibility and parasitism of government work. And of course, if you fire a bunch of teachers, you're going to be firing a bunch of of women, and if you cut welfare, it's going to be very hard uh, on on women in the short run, and so on. And so, when tearful women are holding up their babies, it's really tough for men to say, "Eh, uh-huh, so if you're right, you're socialist, wedded to the state, idiots, right?" I mean, it's tough to tough well, to to do that, right? Of Go course, and, and there, of course, and and there is this uh, this uh, appeal to the emotional side. You know, what about the the women? What about uh, what about the welfare? What about the children? And of course, you can appeal to this emotional side, but the fact is, in Norway, the average Norwegian pays anywhere between sixty and eighty percent of their income to to some form of taxation. Now, that's all forms of taxation combined, sixty to eighty percent of their income. So, when you start uh, when you start deconstructing this system of taxation and, and of regulation and bureaucracy, so, uh, people begin to take more home of, of what they earn, which of course boosts the economy. And they have more than to decide what they want to do with that money. Uh, they, there was a recent study done in Norway that showed that uh, in in the process of paying your taxes and then getting the services back that those taxes are paying for, whether it be uh, medical care, uh, bureaucracy of some kind, uh, teach education, these types of things, in the process of your money being deducted from your income or you paying those taxes through sales tax or gas tax or car tax, whatever it is, and then going to the government and then coming back to you in some form of service, in that process, 20% of that money is lost to bureaucratic costs. 20%. Which, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so in this system that we're just, that, that our party is standing on here, it comes in the idea that not only are you getting 60 to 80% of, of your income not 
you know, that's not no longer being taken from you. You then get to decide what you're going to do with that money. And out of that free market idea uh, arises private charities, arises more money for people to be philanthropic if they decide, or as you <laughs> called it earlier, this uh, pathological altruism. Um, it, but they have the voluntary decision to do that. One of the questions I like to, to personally ask uh, when I'm discussing this with, with another Norwegian here is, uh, let's say tomorrow I, I, I took away the mandate for you to pay all of these taxes. I took away, you, you took home anywhere between two and three t- times more than what you're taking home now. In that world, if tomorrow I took that requirement away from you, does your desire, does this, as you as you put it, uh, the, the pathological altruism, does your desire to help these other people suddenly disappear with the mandate? And of course, they'll instantly re- answer or reflect on it for a minute, but it, the answer is always, well, no, of course, I, I want to help people. That desire doesn't go away. Well, so here you are now. You have two to three times more money than what you did to start with. Uh, without government intervention. Now, you get to decide where that money is best put, not only for your own care, whether it's education or medical or what have you, but then you get to decide which organizations are going to best help help the people that you think need the most help. So when you talk about these situations with the single mothers and, and, uh, and of course, they have the refugees coming, the influx of refugees, uh, and these these different demographics of people that in certain times or certain conditions and certain environments will need more health than others. Well, our party is simply standing by the rational, logical way of thinking rather than appealing to inconsistent emotion, rather than operating on inconsistent emotion. And and so with that, sticking to the rational logic, of course, your desire to help someone isn't going to disappear with a mandate for you to force you to help someone else through taxation. Uh, but uh, with that will arise private charities to help those people in the future. Right. Um, so you're hoping that single moms are going to value consistent rationality above inconsistent emotion? <laughs> well, um, I, I, you know, I, I, started, I, I reserve started. judgment. I, I'd be happy for my skepticism to be proven invalid. I started this conversation by saying, of course, uh, it's human nature. Of course, it's easy to appeal to the emotion, but I'm trying to come at this with our party's um, position of standing on rational and logical uh, approach to, to policy. Right. 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 Well, you know, I mean, as, as uh, OK, the last thing I just wanted to ask was uh, in uh, Norway. Uh, there is uh, government funding is 74 percent of political parties income, at least according to 2010. Uh, sorry, say, and, that, say uh, that one more time. I, 74. So political parties get almost three quarters of their income from the government. The government funds political parties yes, and uh, uh, political ads are banned from television and radio. Would your um, minarchist, the capitalist party, would it take uh, government money uh, to to campaign? OK, so uh, to the first part of your question there, uh, yes, uh, parties do receive a large amount of money from the government, uh, but what that is, it's rated based on the amount of votes that you got in the prior election, that you received in the prior election. So it's this really vicious cycle of, of uh, the bigger the party, the bigger they're going to be. Uh, the more votes that the party gets, the more money they get to get more votes the next time around. Um, so that is how the system is, is designed. Uh, now, as far as our party uh, accepting funds from the government, 
uh, an analogy. When I first joined the party, actually, this was one of my first questions. Uh, when I first joined, one of my first questions for the, the leadership was, uh, in this position, once we start to gain traction, will we accept these types of funds um, from, from government? And uh, the response, the analogy that was given to me said, well, uh, if you're in prison, you don't, re- you don't refuse the meal. Right. Uh, you, you, you have to operate within the environment and with, with the resources and tools that you're afforded. Uh, so I guess the short answer is we would accept those funds to be able to compete with our rivals, to compete uh, with the much bigger fish that we're going up against to a point where we can get to enable to get rid of that type of funding. Yep. Okay, and that's, I mean, I was just curious about that. You know, if you're going to go and invade Germany, you can use German roads. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, there's government, German roads built by the German government. We're at war with them. Uh, I was just, I was just curious well. about that. That's a great analogy yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I guess so, uh, that would be the short answer is yes. <laughs> and I, I would invite, I mean, the most successful politician since at least the 90s, you could maybe count Reagan in there, um, at least the, those who, someone who favors at least according to his, um, some of his policies, smaller government and so on. You, you guys have to look at Donald Trump. I mean, if you want to overturn an established political paradigm, you can look at Donald Trump and you can look at Bernie Sanders. Now, Bernie Sanders is just this gristled, badhead Santa Claus who's riding in with the unearned wealth. Uh, he's stripping from future generations to bribe people into voting for him. So he's just this, he's like this big tennis ball machine that spits stolen gold at people until they submit. But um, <laughs> the, the guy you want to look at in terms of success, you know, like when I wanted to do this, um, what I do, uh, I studied the people who were really good at it. And I listened to them, even if I didn't agree with <laughs> even half of what they said, or a third, a quarter, or 1%. You look at the people who are the best. Now, Donald Trump, if he's asked, you know, uh, well, what if someone is someone who's working for you turns out to be an illegal immigrant? Would you ship them back home? He's like, well, yeah, you know, I'd feel bad about it. I got a heart, but yeah, I'd ship them back. And when people say, well, how are you going to deport that many people? He's like, well, first of all, you know, we reduce their benefits so they self-deport. But yeah, that's what you do, right? So own the downside is really important. If people can get you, this is this is the great challenge of communication, uh, of, of challenging moral pr- propositions. Study him. You know, if you want to study me, I've been doing this for even longer than Donald Trump in some ways, but, you know, obviously he's a bit more prominent. But um, you, you got to own the downside. Uh, and what that means is that if it looks like you have trouble with the consequences of your policies, Other people are going to have trouble with the consequences of your policies. The great secret is that almost nobody knows how to think and almost nobody can judge anybody else morally or intellectually. What they can do and what they will do is they will judge how you, how you judge yourself. So if you're like, well, you know, these policies are going to be really tough. We're going to have to put them in slowly. It's going to be painful. Then people are going to be like, okay, well, you don't even like the consequences of what you're doing. Whereas if you're like, the right thing to do is this. Is it going to be painful? Ah, so what? You know, I mean, we got to do the right thing. We've got to do the right thing. Like I was always raised, do the right thing, though the sky falls. Uh, don't follow the crowd. You know, if everybody else was jumping off the, the Brooklyn Bridge, would you do it too? You do the right thing regardless of the consequences. All moral progress has been putting principle above practicalities. It was hard to end slavery. It required a big reconfiguration of the economy, but people did it because it was the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do 
to stop the forcible redistribution of wealth that is causing so many short-term benefits for people, but so much long-term pain and problems. You know, a welfare state is like cocaine. Uh, we don't say to the coke addict, well, you know, uh, it's going to be really bad if you quit, so you should just keep going. I mean, you know, you have to, you know, you don't say we'll taper it off over a generation or 10 years or whatever. Like, we'll do it as quickly as humanly possible. And so uh, owning the downside is the great challenge, you know, because people are going to be like, well, isn't your system going to create lots of problems and it's like what do i care it's the right thing to do you know is it a problem when the slaves get freed yeah i mean lots of people lost their investments lots of people uh, had bought farms assuming that there were a whole bunch of slaves going to be there but too bad slavery was wrong so it had to end and people dealt with the consequences and this forcible redistribution of wealth is immoral it is a violation of property rights it's a violation of that which makes us human and civilized it's turned into this soft civil war of all against all using the mailed fist of the government to pretend it's something other than a punch to the head it's absolutely immoral it's absolutely wrong and I frankly don't care what the consequences are any more than we said, well, you know, if we give equal rights to women, that's going to displace some male workers. No, it's uh, equal rights for women. That's what's got to be. That's the right thing to do. And we don't sit there and say, well, you know, if we, if we allow equal rights for gays, then, yeah, right? It doesn't matter. I mean, who cares what the consequences are? You do the right thing. Uh, and that's what matters. And if you want to vote for people who are obsessed about consequences, go to the sycophants next door. But if you want people who are going to do the right thing, who are going to do the moral thing and advance civilization from this destructive semi-socialist detour it's been on over the last two generations and reclaim freedom and integrity and property and, and, and liberty for this country, then you've got to come here. But don't, t don't give me these scare stories about what happens after we do the right thing. We do the right thing, period. Oh, and that's absolutely a fair point. Uh, uh, I, I should make it clear that uh, we're, of course, not afraid of the consequences of our own uh, platform. Uh, we're in that way. Uh, of course, it is the nature of politics. You do need to to choose your words uh, carefully so that you're not misunderstood or or capture a sound bite that can be later nope. twisted out of no, context. No, I, I disagree. Yeah. I disagree. I mean. Uh, oh, obviously and, and, you and don't you, want to you, no listen hang on hang on you you don't want to model yourself after the evil policies of the man but hitler did not choose his words carefully <laughs> you know i mean uh, is donald trump choosing all of his words carefully no, no you absolutely. speak from the heart you speak passionately about the truth everybody knows when they're being massaged and the moment you try and massage people rather than delivering them the straight goods you're no longer a leader you're a follower and that's the most revolting thing about democracy as a whole is that people get so tired and and disgusted at being manipulated with walkarounds rather than people just saying directly no the welfare state is immoral it's evil it's using force to transfer wealth from people who've earned it to people who haven't that's called theft in any rational universe but directly opposed to it what happens after that doesn't matter it doesn't matter we do the right thing and so if you start saying we got to pick your words carefully and so on i think you've already lost the battle. You need to be a moral leader. If you're going to attempt a moral revolution in your society, you need to be an unapologetic, direct moral leader. The moment you start trying to massage your words, I think you're going to lose the battle because people are going to say, well, I feel manipulated. He's hiding something from me. Give people the straight goods about everything you intend, why you intend to do it, and let them make their decision. Don't try and control them through manipulative language. That is a way of avoiding the direct conversation that needs to happen about the use of force in society. In my opinion, I'm not a political consultant. That's how I would do it, which is why I'm here and not where you are. No, <laughs> Maybe no, no. That's and, my thought. And that's and our and our party, uh, Liberalista. Um, we are by no we have by no means 
beat around the bush about what we intend to do. If you were to go to our website, for example, and uh, which we are working on a multi-language platform there. Currently, it's it's in Norwegian, so I don't know how much help that would be for you. But later on, it will all be available in English as well. So give give the website because we do have Norwegian listeners. So give the website if you want to be in contact with you. But if if you were to go to the website, uh, we lay everything out, um, what our intentions are, what our platform is. There There is no... Um, being subtle or discreet or, or mincing words. We're very direct in what our platform is. Uh, all of our literature, when we're out campaigning, and, and um, we have our, our down on in Oslo, Carl Johans Gata, which is the city center. Um, during the election last year, for example, we were there for, for uh, it was about a month um, where we had our own section of the street where we got to discuss what our policies were and uh, put out our literature. And this is all part of a campaign, right? Well, in our literature, as you read it and as we're discussing, very much outlining the definition of exactly what taxation is, what exactly redistribution of wealth is, the fact that it is theft from one to another uh, and defining as threat. And in a country like Norway, where these people are, are the socialists, is what I mean by that, uh, socialists are indoctrinated into this way of thinking in that uh, when you call what they've since birth, basically, essentially, is, is accepted as the way of life, that this moral uh, way of living, and you tell them everything that they've believed in is theft, of course, it catches a lot of them off guard and, and right off the bat turns them off to a point a lot of them just turn around and walk away. They don't even want to have the conversation. And then there are a lot of them who do entertain the, the idea and entertain the conversation. And then there are a lot of them who, who I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, we had one person who came to us who used to be a hardcore communist. This was last year during the campaign, during the Oslo election. And we had a long conversation. He came back several times and, and uh, he was discussing our platform. And then he, he eventually signed up and became a member. And, uh, of course, he wasn't a communist that day, but throughout his life, he'd come from being a communist to uh, a little bit more rational way of thinking. And he said, you know, what I like about this platform, what I like about this idea is that in your society, in your ideal society, I'm still free to be a communist if I want. I'm still free to gather in, a, in, in my own little neighborhood and we can have our own little commune and, and uh, pay into these, this tax pot and get what services we want to. But in a communist, an ideal communist society, I'm not free to be a liberalist. You're not free to be a classical liberal. You're not free to practice this, this, this uh, way of thinking. Uh, so that gives you an idea of the spectrum of people. But right now, since we are so new, again, since October of 2014, it, it is catching a lot of people off guard, right? And my point with this is to just address the fact that no, our party isn't beating around the bush. We are very direct. We're very direct about what our policy is, what we want to achieve, uh, and how we expect to get there, whether it's, as I was saying, scaffolding strategy or whether it's happening overnight, the consequences of each scenario, the consequences of each decision, and the fact that we fully embrace those consequences because, as you said, it is the morally correct, rational, and logical way to do things. Good. All right. Well, uh, I certainly wish you the best of luck in uh, educating people. And, um, I, you know, I've actually found I have more respect for uh, uh, talking to dedicated communists than I do to the uh, average uh, soupy relativist or nihilist, because, you know, I'd, I'd rather have a battle with somebody with a big sword than somebody who just throws fog out and... <laughs> 
<laughs> goes into a ball. Yep. Okay, so um, is there something else you wanted to mention? Because I got to move on to the last caller. Yeah, well, it does uh, just come back to my original question. Uh, do you see a value uh, or uh, in, in utilizing channels within a political system, such as Norway, within a social democracy, um, where the system is is structured in a way that you do have to? There's a way that you have to get to where you want to to change the system. There is a way. There is a a, a challenge of getting there, of course. But um, as the metaphor you used, you're invading Germany. You're going to use the German roads. Or the metaphor I used uh, when you're in prison, you're not going to refuse the mule. Do you see a value, or do you recognize a value in utilizing those channels within the political system? In this case, social democracy. Um, to spread the idea of classical liberalism and, and, and individual freedom. Well, that's a um, it's a, it's an unfair question, if you don't mind me saying so. And I'm not saying you're trying to be unfair, but let me sort of say why, and uh, then you can tell me what you think. Because you say, is there value in it? Well, compared to what? Right. I mean, of course, of course, there's some value in it. I mean, you, you get to expose people to free market ideas. You get a public platform for talking about the non-aggression principle and property rights and small government and, and, and all of that. And there will be people who will change their minds. And who, right. So, of course, there's value in it. I mean, uh, but but compared to what? Is it the maximum value that you could possibly have in the application of your talents in the world? That's the question. Right. That's the question. Is it does it have value for me to try and become the lead ballerina in the Bolshoi ballet? Yes, because I'll do some exercise. I'll get some stretching in. I'll get to see how uh, shaky my legs experience a tutu. So, <laughs> yes, there's value in it. Is it the very best use of my talents conceivably or possibly given what I can do and what the way the world is and so on. So when you say, is there value in it? Well, if I say, yes, there's value in it, then maybe you feel that that's an endorsement. And if I say, no, there's no value in it, then that's easily disprovable because, of course, I was influenced by a lot of people who were minarchists and got to anarchy through through that route. So that's what I mean. Like, that's a kind of a trick question because, yeah, there's value in it, but is there maximum value in it? And, and that's that's another answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's why I wasn't asking definitively if there's value. I was asking if you personally recognize the value in such a, a system like Norway or other Scandinavian countries. Well, but that's sort of like saying, is there value in the government creating jobs? Well, sure. <laughs> of course, it, there's value for the people who get those jobs and who don't have to pay as much in tax as they're receiving in salary. Sure. But you know what everything is. It's like on the other hand, right? It's it's costs and benefits. You want to look at the – you're asking me other visible benefits to pursuing political action. Sure. But if it's not in a discussion with the hidden costs – the opportunity costs of other things that you could be doing. That's another question. And for that, you know, I've got tons of podcasts on political action and 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 my skepticism towards it and my preferred route of, uh, of, of personal conversations and putting your relationships on the line for your beliefs. I'm not going to go through all of that here because I've done it a million times before. But uh, that's what I mean when I say I'm not you're not trying to be unfair, but it's sort of a don't you see don't you see any value in the creation of government jobs? Well, yeah, some guy might starve to death if he didn't get a I don't know, right? But uh, it's it's the hidden costs and the opportunity costs of what else could be happening at the same time. So okay. uh, all right, I'm going to move on to the next caller. But uh, thanks very much. It was a very enjoyable chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Bye. Now, now, of course, all I want to eat is a Danish. I'm just telling you, you've got to have people. <laughs> Not from countries which translate into food. I just, we've got to tell everyone. <laughs> the next caller is from no Turkey. One from Turkey <laughs> yeah, no one from Turkey or Greece, even, because Greece on Turkey can be pretty good. All right.
All right. Well, up next is David. David wrote in and said, studies have shown that human beings, though definitely social creatures, have an upper limit to the number of people that they can meaningfully know, i.e. have some type of relationship with that is more than superficial acquaintance. Uh, And this limit is fixed at somewhere between 80 to 150 people, depending on the person. Given the scale of government makes it impossible for us to know even a small fraction of those that supposedly represent our interests, quote-unquote, and that lone wolves, quote-unquote, are essentially a myth, would a voluntary society most likely be divided along tribal rather than national boundaries? How might this hinder or help voluntarism? As a follow-up, does this natural limit to our authentic social circle give us some insight into the relative inability of individual people to truly empathize with a larger population? i.e. the poor, those of another culture, etc. That's from David. Uh, hey, David, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Well, thank you. Good. Thanks for so, having me on. Uh, oh, my pleasure. What, uh, what brought you along this, uh, this line of thinking? Uh, well, actually, I stumbled across your channel uh, maybe two, three months ago on YouTube, and then I found your, your actual website, and I just started listening to the, the different podcasts, and I didn't really have a, a strict, um, you know, personal political viewpoint myself. I was raised to be um, strictly non-political. So once I once I kind of looked into it, this was where it sort of led me, and I really took a liking to you know your uh, your philosophy, uh, the the sound reasoning, the logic. And I started thinking about these things myself. And I read a book uh, not that long ago called The Way of Men. And it talked quite a bit about tribalism. That's where I was first introduced to that concept of there only being a, a, a natural high point or limit the number of people that we can have a genuine relationship with. And uh, I've done a little more research on that number since I actually asked the question. And it actually varies between... Uh, roughly 100 and 230, but the, the 150 was the most common number uh, talked about. So, uh, the which would accord with it. the you know sort of Stone Age tribal environments yeah, that we exactly rock. exactly it yeah. lines up. It lines up almost perfectly with like Neolithic uh, farming villages, uh, even classical and current military units that are able to work cohesively together without there needing to be. Uh, you know, a, a more significant breakdown of uh, leadership or, or directives. You know, yeah, and in, in corporations, you don't just well. have one giant. You don't have one giant airplane hangar with four thousand people in it, right? You, right. you break it down to more manageable groups and subdivisions with team leaders and bosses, and so yeah, um, that's uh, yeah. So I, I think that that's sort of how we evolved, and I think in a free. <laughs> market society, then organizations would probably fall along those lines to some degree. You know, one of the big challenges with civilization is that we evolved in small Neolithic groups, yeah. say 150, 200 people, but we only advanced biologically when we had a much wider gene pool to draw from in terms of potential mates. I mean, that's kind of like royal family inbreeding planet of <laughs> Neolithic tribes, you know? Because, like, yeah. you know, you got 150 people, half of them are men, you know, half of them are, are women of child, and half of those are women of childbearing age. So finding somebody you don't share any <laughs> blood with, so to speak, is 
is a little tricky, which is, of course, why they'd go on raids and maybe sometimes mix well, up the diversity with other yeah. people or why a lot of Europeans seem to have a Neanderthal forehead fetish and bang anything that crawled <laughs> around a half fours. But yeah. that, that challenge, so when we, when we got agriculture and we could get larger settlements, the biological diversity uh, reduced inbreeding and allowed for a much faster acceleration of our evolution, particularly in terms of intelligence, particularly, as I said in the first call, with regards to a harsher environment. So we kind of have the problem of larger social groups because we uh, abandon small social groups. Uh, so in other words, we only have this challenge of dealing with more people because we have a civilization that rejected, in a sense, the 150-band Neolithic model in, in favor right. of the smaller town or city that surrounded uh, right. uh, agriculturally fertile lands. Well, I think the difficulty with that, too, is not just recognizing that it has been abandoned, but also questioning whether or not in a voluntary society it would be wise to choose uh, those types of bands or to very, very carefully select the groups that we made ourselves a part of. I mean, because right now, the groups, quote unquote, groups that we belong to, whether they're at a national, a state, a city, a town, whatever level you're talking about, are artificially imposed upon us. They're not something that we've made any real decisions as far as, you know, uh, claiming that group for our own, aside from maybe, you know, moving. Wait, wait, hang on. Sorry. Another. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. So I just want to make sure I follow. Are you saying that in towns we are involuntarily imposed, like a, a larger group than the 150 is involuntarily No, no, no that's, that's not actually, that, that, is, that is tied into what I'm saying. But my point being that we associate ourselves, like when you ask somebody, well, you know, where are you from or what? what forms your identity to a certain extent. You know, they're going to say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm a United States citizen. I'm from the state of New York. I'm from this town, et cetera. Whereas if you were talking about a voluntary society where the state no longer existed, that state had been dissolved, you're not going to identify yourself from, you know, a continent that you're from or, you know, a very large section of that continent. You're not going to identify yourself by some arbitrary border that once existed. You'd be more likely to say, well, you know, I work with this group of people or I'm a part of, you know, this group of, uh, you know, artisans or, or whatever the case may be, whereas it would be or in those situations, it would be more of a, a voluntary, uh, not to say that towns are in and of themselves involuntary, but it would be a more natural uh, self-identification, if that makes any sense. Yes. No. And I, I think that that would be the case. I mean, in, in a free society, people would generally respect the non-aggression principle, which is not to say everybody would be part of the same tribe, because as you're right, there are people who'd want to be street performers and that people who want to be wallpapers and uh, hangers and there'll be people who want to work in plumbing and, and they would have their own trade associations and their own groups. So there'd be a fundamental set of shared values. But that doesn't mean that everybody would then be just this blank, non-aggression principle robot that would be yeah. undifferentiated from everyone else. Because some right. people would want to form singing groups and other people would, you know, you get the point, right? So well, there would I mean, be this the... subdivision into aesthetic talents and preferences and professional associations and so on that would probably end up coalescing around the 1 to 150. Right, right. And I agree with that. And, and the research that uh, the, the Professor Dunbar, who that, that Dunbar's number, the 150, I don't know if you've ever read much about that or heard much about that, uh, but basically he did. I've heard the theory, but I've not read anything in detail on the guy. Right. So his basic concept was that each group of primates exhibited a, a limit to their social structure based on their ability to 
socially groom one another to have some sort of actual uh, physical contact and, and association with each other. And also their neocortal, um, basically their brain size. I don't remember which part of the brain it was specifically, but their brain size correlated with the size of the group that they could be a part of. And one of the things that he espoused was that if, uh, if you look at the way that humans developed our ability to speak with one another in a large way took the place of that social grooming, you know, instead of you and I picking bugs out of each other's hair, we talk about things and that enables us to, to develop these bonds, which is why we can have much larger groups of, you know, friends and associates than the other groups of primates, why we're able to develop these complex relationships with a large number of people. And then if you look at the way that that continued to develop, you have three basic forms that Neolithic man and those prior formed into and continue to do so, you know, through every Stone Age civilization, even the ones that were relatively recently discovered. So you see the smallest group, which is basically just a band of people or was referred to as a band, which is a few families, maybe one extended family, and they work together. And then you have sort of a, what do you you call a lineage group, which is maybe a more extended family with several generations. And that, that group size expands from roughly 30 to maybe a hundred or so. And that's where you start to get from a hundred to 200 into that, that mean range where we're talking about that specific number. And then you get groups of bands that form into tribes, which are a bit more permanent because you've got that larger number of people. They're not just going to disband if a couple of them are lost to sickness or if a significant number decide to branch off you still have enough left to, to form a cohesive unit of some kind. So uh, basically my, my, my thinking on, the, on this, this train is that in a voluntary society, in a stateless society, the things that kind of earmark those smaller groups fit very well with that. Now, the, the exception being what you had mentioned, which was the, uh, the ability to intermarry, the ability to interbreed led to advances in, in intelligence, in, uh, you know, immune response, all these things that we associate with having genetic diversity, but the actual day-to-day habits or the ways of these smaller groups of people is pretty interesting. And if I could just read you something real quick, it's just a brief, uh, synopsis of these bands specifically. Basically they, they have a power structure, which is egalitarian which fits with a voluntary society. You, you mentioned women's rights with the previous caller. Um, you know, in most of these situations with a small group of people, you can't afford to dabble in identity politics. Whoever's best for the job, whoever is objectively most suited to that job is going to have that job because you're not going to waste your time and resources on somebody just because it's, you know, you're trying to make them feel good or you're trying to push a, a social agenda uh, they had informal leadership, so not not one big chieftain, not a group of people exerting their will on others. They mostly formed their decisions or their uh, their their paths based on a consensus among them because you have a small enough number of people where you can have that discussion, which again is something that we would want to do even now with a higher IQ, with a you know, with a deeper understanding of of how people work. Um, there was very few formal enforced social institutions. 
in these smaller groups. It wasn't until you get to the larger tribes that you see things being, you know, codified and, and enforced through, uh, I believe the term was coercive roles, basically the people like, you know, the police. And then along with that, you know, we had, we had people looking to each other and the older members of the group for, for wisdom or direction. In some cases they would look towards, you know, shamans or, or so-called medicine men. Whereas, you know, today, that that same type of role could be taken by philosophy. You know, those who are who are suited to that kind of discipline, and uh, you know, generally recognized within a free and voluntary society as as having the you know the acumen for that sort of thing, would be in a position to to give advice to to a group as a whole and, and kind of shape that um, consensus without actually enforcing it or, or putting it upon them. Right. Right. Is there more that you wanted to add to that? I want to make sure I didn't um, cut you off. Oh, no, no, you're fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to ramble too long here. I just, there's a few no, things no, that, I had, that I had written down that I thought were important as far as the basic idea goes. I mean, obviously there are, there are things that we can improve on from, you know, Neolithic tribes, but the, the things that you can take out of that, that are, that are good, I think are, are pretty significant. Um, but where they do fall short and what typified some of the things that, uh, we associate with primitive people was an inability to generate a surplus of any kind in order to give them, you know, the, the means to stay put or to, you know, develop other technologies besides just scrabbling for food. Um, they, they didn't have any sort of, you know, written laws, not necessarily that you'd have to have, <clears throat> you know, a written codified law for every single type of thing, but, you know, they didn't have the ability to pass on their traditions or their wisdom any other way, but, but, uh, you know, but through oral traditions. So in a free and voluntary society with the free market in place, um, obviously technology would enable small groups who are, are aware and conscious of their reason uh, for being in a small group, for being able to empathize and cooperate with everyone that they're doing business with or that they're um, interacting with on a daily basis. They would have the ability to generate these surpluses, to focus on you know, advancing technologies that we already have and you know, pushing the limits of human understanding as we see it now without interference from the government without, you know, things of, of, uh, uh, of a regulatory nature holding them back. And then at the same time, having not a coercive society, but rather, you know, a voluntary, a voluntary society with expectations that, that were, uh, written or expressed clearly, you know, along the lines of universally preferable behavior. You know, here's here's the outline of what's acceptable behavior. Here's here's what people can and can't do. If you don't follow these laws, you're no longer a part of the group. I know you talked earlier about well, yeah, ostracism being yeah, such no, a powerful I, tool. And I've made I've made this argument a bunch of times, so I'll keep it brief. But um, it takes intimate knowledge to effectively punish free riders through social ostracism, and you know the. 
the, the problem of, of free riders, in other words, those who wish to benefit from collective efforts without contributing to it, you know, we've always, we've all had this in school, you know, when you're in school and let's do a group project. And to me, it was always like, oh no, <laughs> let's not do a group yeah. project, whatever we do, because now there's going to be some jerkwad who forgets or lost the work he did and everyone's going to have to scramble and it may be more than one. And, you know, I remember um, I did a course on economics uh, in, in, medieval world and um we we had to do population examinations and, and the guy really wanted us to dig in and understand and i was i was the good guy with with excel and all that and i was like fine i'll do it <laughs> I'll, I'll and i still have it somewhere um the, the 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 spreadsheet i put together with an examination of the effects of of, of plagues and war on, on medieval populations and so on and afterwards afterwards it was like uh Everyone sort of crowded around me and, you know, man, we're going to buy you a beer for taking that bullet, <laughs> you know, because that was his yeah. long point. And I mean, I'm always the guy, okay, I'll do it, right? I'm fine. And so this this collective effort and, and free riders is, is a real challenge. And everybody wants the group to come and raise their barn, but they don't want to go and raise other people's barn. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly valid tension to have within society. And... um as I've mentioned before, you know, when I got uh, sick and, and had to go, well, felt I had to and, and really did have to go to the U.S. for uh, for treatment, uh, I, pu- I put the call out and and people who value what it is that I provide uh, kicked in money to to pay for the airfare, the hotel, the, the medical costs, the, the uh, anesthesiologist, the surgery, the, the, the scans and all that. And, and so because I have contributed a lot to the world, you know, we're doing like uh, 8 million plus downloads a month, probably certainly four million on the the podcast uh, on the video side, and and probably an equivalent amount on the podcast side. And um, so, because I've contributed a lot, when I ask for help, people will uh, contribute back. Of course, it's nowhere near the number of people who gain value out of what it is that I do. Freedomainradio.com slash donate. If you're in that shameless camp of exploiters, don't be there. <laughs> don't be there. Do the right thing. You know, you need to. Not you, but. Um, so, oh, no, so I, if, I, I do donate actually, I do. I appreciate uh, that. I so, so everybody wants, everybody wants to, to get the value of social capital and they don't really want to contribute as much. Now, I think what happens is when society has the right to withhold value from people who haven't contributed to it. A wonderful thing happens. I mean, that sounds like a mafia holdup, you know, like uh, be ashamed if something happened to your medical money in the future if you didn't bake a nice chicken pie for your ill grandma or something, you know. Right. But, but it is a reality that once you start contributing to the world, once you start contributing to your community, beautiful things happen. You know, the spider webs yeah. of, of an affection and concern and care really do flow into your heart and into your mind. And, you know, we're all kind of born selfish, you know, like uh, it's not like after your baby drinks from one titty, offers the other nipple up to you if you're a woman, right? right? I mean, right. You, don't, greedy, you don't come out you know, of the yeah, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, babies who weren't selfish, oh, no, you have the last crust of bread. <laughs> they, they didn't make it, right? So yeah. you're, born, you're born selfish and you need to be – um, trained into reciprocity. Altruism, of course, is an objectivist. It has, or an ex-objectivist has some negative stuff, which I agree. Right. And so, so this this question of the free rider, coaching people out of selfishness requires 
the stick and the carrot, like all good things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and and the stick is, well, you're not going to get social benefits if you don't contribute. And the carrot is, by the way, once you get used to contributing, it's a beautiful thing. It's a right. beautiful thing. Uh, to well, do and and it really does does help now with the state sorry i'll be done no, no, you're fine, state, you're fine. this this all ends with the state but the, the problem of the free rider it i mean it ends in a way with the state because you don't have any capacity to ostracize or reject people who aren't contributing Right. Right. So you can have some, you know, some horrible woman who is a bully in school, is mean, gets drunk, uh, sleeps around, gets um, pregnant. And, and no one can ostracize that behavior because she can just run to the government and the mm -hmm. government can by force extract resources from the community and give it to this person, however much the community may despise this person. And so what happens is the natural selfishness of infancy gets to continue all the way up into adulthood. And there's no stick and no carrot that the community can offer people in order to give them and teach them and, and invite them into the joys of reciprocity through the threat of ostracism or a diminishing of value. So once you have the state, community is completely destroyed. Community evolved as a great way of dealing with the free rider problem. And when this uh, state comes in and forces communities to, to give resources to people that, that they despise and to people who openly oppose those community values, migrants in Europe, uh, then, then community as a whole ends. And, and really, reciprocity ends. Uh, love within community members ends. The, the, the value of having values ends. The value of conforming to decent behavior ends. The value of the elderly gets significantly diminished. Because, of course, the elderly in a free society have accumulated significant experience and are willing because they know how badly things... Yeah, let me rephrase that, because i got to start again. One of the things that happens when you get older is life choices go from theoretical to, boy, there's lots of evidence. Like, I'm now old enough, because I'm going to be like 50 this year, so I'm now old enough to have seen the values of people that I knew when I was 12, how those values have played out in people's lives. I know at a very deep and visceral level, in a way that it was impossible for me to know when I was younger. Yeah. I, I, I know in a deep and visceral level the degree to which values play out in life for better or for worse. So I, I am very strong in enforcing those values with my children, and with my child and with others because I know in a very deep and visceral way what happens. Now, when the right. state comes in, the value of the old vanishes and the old become like doddering vaguely racist old people who smell of peppermints and uh, who have candies you'd never want to eat because there's like Egyptian dynasties layers of dust on them and so uh, the, the accumulated wisdom and and the value of having values diminishes because what the hell is the point of being against single motherhood and the incredibly toxic corrosive and destructive effects that single motherhood has on society what the hell is the point of being against single motherhood if the single mother is going to clamp onto the state and use the power of the state to take resources from you and give them to her anyway, right? The, the rape of the wallet, which is, is as significant to a man's sexual value as the rape of the vagina is to a woman's sexual value, the, the, the rape of the wallet that occurs, which diminishes the capacity of any community to enforce any standards whatsoever, this um, means that 
there's no point having any community. You might as well, you know, have, you know, pornography and, and video games and, and go on, you know, this new phrase, binge watching, you know, go binge watch something on Netflix or whatever. Well, why not? There's no point having values. You can't enforce well, any values. Anyway. There's an entire subculture in Japan, the herbivores, who basically have just defaulted to that. They just retreated to their homes and play video games and watch porn and that's it. Yeah, and they're, they're no called desire. the dry fish ladies as well. They have no interest in having kids. The Japanese right. birth rate has plummet, pl- pl- uh, so plummeted well, and all that. Yeah. yeah. And I have a theory on the, um, the what you mentioned before, the free riders and the, the sense of community. And I think that a big part of why people feel free or don't feel any sense of shame by taking advantage of you know the, the free ride from the state is that they don't really have an in-group that's providing them with anything. If you're a member of a you know a tribe or a band, a small group of people, and I, I'm using those terms, and I'm talking also about in a modern day context. You know, if you had 150 people working on you know a large farm, all reaping the benefits of that 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 production, and they're all have interpersonal relationships. They're all in the same boat together. They're all benefiting from that labor. Then it's going to be a much, much smaller percentage of men or women who will allow themselves to even entertain the idea of a free ride. If you get a free ride in today's society, you don't see any negative effect from that, from that path or that course of action amongst those that you care about. That would not be the case. And no, the government doesn't intervene do with what's best for you. Sometimes giving people to resources, giving people resources is very, very helpful. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's unbelievably destructive. Yeah. Right. Ch- charity is one. And I mentioned that. I mean, charity is one of these unbelievably complicated things in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, building a nuclear reactor, very difficult. Accurately applying charity to dysfunctional people. <laughs> Much harder. And I say this from intense personal experience where I've used resources to help people. Sometimes it's worked. A lot of times it, it really hasn't. Oh, me too. And yeah, I mean, it's it, it, there's nothing more humbling than trying to help people. And when you recognize that, like when I say, well, it's my money on the line, my ego, my preferences, my desperate desire to help someone on the line. And I swear to God, I'm batting maybe 300 <laughs> in that. I'm just, you know, maybe maybe a, a quarter or a third of the people I have really, really expended resources in my life trying to help have received or, or accepted or, or enacted any positive benefit out of my help. I'm a pretty smart guy. I've got resources uh, that I can use to try and help people. I now just outsource it. Like I, I, I give up, right? I mean, I'll do it sometimes on this show if we can do it in a very productive and, and proactive way. But when it comes to helping people, I'll no more try and help other people through personal charity than I will offer to extract their wisdom teeth with a cherry bomb. Like it's just not going to work out well. I'm going to outsource that to the experts, the, the people who are going to do it right. Uh, but that's also partly because um, it's not a community. You, you can't really charitably help people unless you have really long-term relationships, know where they're coming from. So the state, by sending out a check, has no idea whether sending out the check is really helping someone, in which, you know, which in some cases it is, or is really, really harming not just them, but the decisions of those who come after them. Uh, and of course, the degree to which um, uh, less intelligent people need more social cues to behave properly. Like really smart people generally don't get, they're not single moms, they don't get divorced, they don't commit crimes because they go, well, that's a bad idea. 
You know, it's obvious, right, if you're a smart person. If you're a less intelligent person, you need more immediate social cues as to what's right or what's wrong. So the, the, the smart person can say, well, you know, if I have unprotected sex now, 20 years from now, I'm blah, blah, 20 years, baby jail, and it's not worth it, and my sexual market value goes down, so I'm going to put on, uh, you know, a couple of condoms. Whereas the less intelligent person might not have that long-term view, which is why they used to be chaperones on dates and, and uh, you know, you had to leave the door ajar if you had a boy in your room and to keep one foot on the floor and people were always checking in on you because you weren't smart enough to, to see the long-term view. So society stepped in to enforce uh, sexual mores for the betterment, uh, betterment of society as a whole. The government doesn't care about that, doesn't do it, can't do it. And so you're not going to get those immediate social cues of disapproval and prevention. Uh, and you're not going to see the visible, like for people who can't project forward 20 years and say, you know, what's the consequences of unprotected sex now when I'm 17? What they can do is they can say, well, the last woman who had unprotected sex when she was 17, she's shunned, she's ostracized, she had to leave town, she had to give the kid up for adoption, it was a disaster. Uh, and so, I'm, you know, they, they can't empathize with themselves. They don't have the capacity intellectually maybe to empathize with themselves 20 years down the road, but they can at least see the smoking crater where some woman's reputation was six months ago and remember that as an instance. So uh, it is particularly cruel for the less intelligent people. Smart people would generally make decent decisions in most contexts, but less intelligent people need examples. They need ostracism examples. They need uh, immediate consequence examples to navigate better with. Uh, and so uh, taking that away with the welfare state is really, really bad for the least intelligent uh, in society as a whole. Right, because Cherry, that's you know, applied improperly is just going to shield someone from the necessary consequences of poor decisions. And that's not going to teach them anything. It's just going to enable those same decisions again and again. I mean, I've seen it with, you know, uh, family members of mine years ago, uh, not too closely related, but I mean, I've seen the exact same scenario over and over and over again, where you know, one decision leads to another bad decision leads to another bad decision. And because it's all basically subsidized by the state, it's just self-perpetuating. So, um, and then because because you're not suffering any personal consequences, speaking negatively about such behavior is always interpreted as I don't know what misogynistic or right. like you hate right. people, like you hate the poor, or you you know slut shaming or something like that. It's like and and in a weird way that's kind of accurate. Like because yeah, when values. Did, when did shame become a bad ahead. thing? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, as a white male, have you ever experienced shaming from society as a whole? Have you ever been called patriarchal, male I've, chauvinist, I've racist? Experienced, or course, right? I've experienced attempts at shaming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was one thing that even before I had ever uh, listened to your show, that was something that I completely rejected from a very young age. I remember having a discussion uh, in high school. I'm, I'm pushing 30 now. So I mean, we're going back probably 15, 16 years. I remember still being in high school having a conversation about slavery and people bringing up, you know, the, the need for reparations. We were having a discussion about it in class. And I remember just saying, like, who, who, uh, who was the last, you know, like group to, to get into slavery and who ended it? <laughs> and when I saw your presentation on the truth about slavery, that really, reminded me of that and rung you know rung true again just the the whole the whole concept of you know the the society that we're in today shames those who have no reason to feel shame and absolves people from shame who would benefit from feeling it and that's 
Well, you know, even if uh, even if we were to accept that reparations were necessary, we'll just look at two generations of the welfare state and call it a deal. <laughs> yes, so. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, this this uh, v- values and ostracism and social disapproval and all of and and social rewards and social approval and the application of resources these are all very difficult things mm-hmm. to do i mean you know if you've ever strongly disapproved of someone in your life and and acted on that disapproval it's uncomfortable it, it's sort of a, a weapon of last resort uh, for society as a whole which is why society aims at prevention rather than attempting to get people back on course if they deviate yeah. from sort of foundational and productive moral standards and so it, it's an uncomfortable thing. And, and these, these standards have arisen out of desperation uh, of how to deal with free riders, of how to deal with people who make bad decisions. I mean, values arise because less intelligent people need more immediate cues than they can process. You know, smart people don't need a lot of ethics because smart people can look at the long-term value and disvalue of their immediate decisions and make generally good decisions. The smarter you are, the less you need ethics. You don't need heaven and hell uh, to, to make you do the right thing if you can conceptualize and empathize with yourself down the road. So um, morality was in, in many ways invented out of a desperation of less intelligent people continually making bad decisions and the desperation of smarter people on how to get them to make better decisions. And that's where the ostracism and shaming and all that comes in. It's not really that necessary for very smart people, but it is much more necessary for uh, less intelligent people. That's a very blanket statement. There's lots of exceptions and so on. Bernie Madoff and so like. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but I think that that basic reality is, is really important that uh, ethics arose out of a need for people to make better decisions who obviously without ethics weren't making good decisions. And ethics backed up. Ethics are meaningless in the absence of freedom of association. Ethics are absolutely meaningless because ethics arose out of um, the capacity to to reject people who did not conform to ethical standards. And if you have no capacity to reject people who don't conform to your ethical standards, which is the basis of the welfare right. state and other forms of government forced redistribution, what the, what the hell does it mean to have values? Which is why moral people used to be considered really good in a voluntary, more voluntary society, a smaller government society. Now, if you're a moralist, you're just some prig. You know, like, what, what, why would you, it's, again, it's like going back to the first call. If you think all races are equal, then to, to have uh, skeptical views about certain abilities of some race or another is to be racist by definition, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, if there's no difference in morality between tall and short people, which there isn't, right, then uh, although you could say height is a function of good genes and intelligence is a function of good genes, but let's just say, go with the general what, what I, I understand. Yeah, there's no difference in, in morality between good between tall and, and short people. And right. there, if you were to say short people are generally more immoral, then you would obviously be bigoted and against short people for right. some reason. You with a sack of short people when you were a kid and you're just rationalizing it. And um, so, so if you don't have the capacity to reject anyone, then there's really no reason to have ethical standards. And therefore, if you do have ethical standards, you're considered to be a prig, which is why if people have issues with women going out there and courting sexual disaster with with skimpy dressing and provocative dancing and pretending like they've got an armed set of bodyguards and they're like Madonna on a stage rather than some woman in a frat house or something, or or the Middle East, (laughs) the Middle East probably now, 
then what happens if, if then, well, you must just be shaming them because you have issues and you hate women and you're a Victorian prude and you just don't like people expressing their sexuality. And in a weird kind of way, you know, like I, I'm selling ethical standards. So, of course, I'm opposed to the state because the state is interfering with the value of what I have to offer in the marketplace. Well, people having ethical standards doesn't benefit the state in any way. So there's no reason for them to reinforce it. And in, in line with what you were just saying, there's a, a quote that I read that I actually wrote down just today, coincidentally, which said that without the possibility of dishonor, there can be no honor. You can't be right. honorable if there's no way for you to be the opposite of that. Right. So. And, and with the, without voluntarism, there's no reason to have ethical standards. You know, I mean, uh, I can say like uh, and what I can do is I can at least say where the choice exists, we should exercise it. Right. Which is where I say dating single mothers is a disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, and whatever I can do to lower the sexual market value of single mothers, I will do. And this is why they don't like it. And of course, I completely understand why they don't <laughs> like it. It's just too bad that they don't like it. You know, that's that's fine. Right. But um what I, you still, you know, you don't have choices about whether your resources get stolen from you at gunpoint and handed over to single mom to buy their idiotic votes, but you do have a choice about who you date, at least for now. Right. And, so, uh, uh, and so at least where we can exercise choice, we should exercise choice. And then that is actually the greatest kindness in, in, to, to women as a whole. People, oh, you don't date single moms is a bad thing for women. You dislike women. No, love women. Uh, which is why I don't want them to end up as single moms. And so if smart women are not going to end up as single moms anyway, but the less intelligent women, if they say, well, no one dates those single moms and that's why I'm not going to become one. Okay. So you had a bad reason for a good action. I'll take that. Right. Yeah. If you can be incentivized by the potential for shame to do good things, then the result is the same regardless. And that's actually yeah. I, I don't care point. why you're not a single mom. I'm just glad that you're not. <laughs> right, exactly. Like I don't care why somebody doesn't bludgeon me to death. Their motivation doesn't matter. It, it's just as long as I'm alive and kicking, I'm good. So with the the concept of you know a free society and voluntarism and the abolition of the state, you're also looking at you know the the absolute end of you know the formal institution of marriage as it's seen by the state. I think that in a voluntary society, in a, you know, quote unquote tribal society, marriage would be a lot more common because you wouldn't have, you know, the, the gun of the state to the temple of the, you know, potential husband. And you would also not have, you know, the bags of money for the potential wife waiting for them, you know, at, at the state. So you'd have more of a natural dynamic between men and women. Women would be far less likely to end up as single mothers, whether the, whether the reasons were good or not, like we just discussed. And you'd also have a situation where people would be a lot less likely to get divorced because there'd be very little incentive to do that. There'd be very little incentive for men to divorce women and very little incentive for women to divorce men. And because of that, you know, the women would make a greater effort to keep the man around. The man would make a greater effort to provide for that, that woman who was treating him so well. And there's, there's only a net benefit to that. I can't think of a single negative to it. And as far as, you know, the previous way, you know, you talked earlier about the, the lack of genetic diversity in, you know, primitive tribes and so forth. And even today, if you look around the world, the only existing groups that live in bands or tribes 
today are, you know, those who live in the, the outback of Australia, you know, some pygmies. And as we've discussed, or as, a, as you've discussed on some previous shows, you know, those are some of the lowest IQs on the planet. And obviously part of that is going to be due to the lack of genetic diversity. Whereas with modern technologies, modern abilities to, you know, uh, travel distances and so forth, people would be able to communicate with other groups. People would be able to, you know, look outside their immediate surroundings for a mate, I think, successfully and maintain that same kind of genetic diversity or improve on it. Because I think that kind of that kind of uh, sexual marketplace would lend itself to, you know, a K a K selection strategy rather than an R, which is so much more common today. I don't know what your thoughts yeah, are. Yeah, look, I mean, um, if you've got a hike across an ice field and it's going to take you two weeks and there's obviously no food there, then you've got to bring a big backpack. You've got to plan ahead because <laughs> you're going to be a long time without resources, so you've got to plan ahead. If, on the other hand, you know, there's, there's free food every hundred yards, you don't need to pack. Right, because the resources are all there for you, and and right. what's happened is is the state has turned parenthood from the former into the latter. You don't mm -hmm. need to plan ahead because uh, children are a cost in a free society and need to be paid for, and therefore, because you need to pay for children, you need to, if you're a woman, marry a guy who can provide you good resources and who's going to be stable and reliable and a good father and a good provider rather than just some sexy bad guy, bad boy on a motorbike who's going to you know, the stubble burn your cheek, uh, you know, screw you from behind and then bugger off on his throaty bike, right? I mean, well, that's, you know, the, so so the state has just placed all this food on this death march across the ice flow. And so you don't need to plan ahead. You can just wander along. You don't have to have a backpack. There's food everywhere. And so children, through the power of the state, have been turned from a, a, a liability to an asset. Right. And so it's all about propping up the value, sexual market value of single moms. I mean, if there was no state, then single moms would have extremely low sexual market value because they need a lot of money to pay for their kids' uh, education uh, and uh, living expenses, health care, uh, dental care, you name it. And people would be like, well, no thanks, right? And so women would see that being a single mom would be a pretty desperate and horrible position. And you wouldn't have them starve to death, but at the same time, you wouldn't want them to be overly comfortable. And um, with the welfare state, you know, you think of these girlfriend farms in the ghetto neighborhoods where uh, all the women on welfare, the guy can come move in and live off their welfare. Like not only do the women oh, have yeah. enough resources to pay for their kids, but also a boyfriend. And so now children have gone from a cost, which is where, which is where they rationally are, to a, a resource which is completely backwards and has mutated male-female relations beyond all conceivable recognition. It's the difference between like if you have a job that is tough – you, maybe you don't want to do it much, but you know, if, if the job pays you and the alternative is starvation, you'll go to work. However, if someone comes along and says, I'm going to pay you a million dollars to not go to work, well, your entire relationship with your job has changed because your job was a resource and now it's a liability because it's going there is standing between you and a million dollars. And it's the same thing with kids. You've turned them from a liability into an asset, which has completely changed the relationship between men and women, and it's going to remain weird and mutated and right. bizarre uh, until the actual economic realities of childbearing and parenthood are brought back into focus, and then people will just start making better decisions because they'll have to pack because there isn't a, uh, a big bag of food every hundred yards on the ice. Right. Children have been turned into yet another subsidized crop. So. Yeah. 
And, and it, it's weird because you're actually selling the children. Yeah. You're actually selling the children's future through debt in order to pretend that they're an yeah. asset in the here and now. All right. The irony you, of I'll that. give you the closing statement, but I'm going to wind the show down because, again, it's been, uh, I guess, two and two and a half, almost three hours. So um, a great chat, David. I really appreciate this topic. Uh, if there's anything that you wanted to close off with, I'm certainly happy to give you that uh, privilege, my dear. Yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to wrap this up quickly. Um, there were a few other things I wanted to touch on, but one of them, uh, was just that the the idea that many people I think have is that you know, the ideal human society is a nonviolent one, and I I would agree that you know non aggression is what everyone should be striving for, and that in a free society it would be much easier to achieve that. Um, but I also I also do believe that in such a society people would still have to be prepared to back up their beliefs. With violence, I do believe that people would have to be prepared to, you know, defend their perimeters. Like you talked about earlier, you know, men, men have balls. They've genetically designed to protect and that, you know, the the whole nature of this would be to prevent um, states from arising. I mean, there's always going to be people who want to take more power, who want to gain control over others and hopefully eventually They'd be able to weed that out. Um, but I just wanted to state that you know, I think this this would have to be a society that was uh, based on philosophy and reality. And uh, at the same time, you know, staring, staring the stark, stark, harsh truths of, you know, the dangers that are out there as well. And that that would, you know, favor a, a, a prepared, intelligent and, and long, far-sighted um, human population, wherever this, wherever this took place. But, uh, yeah. Best thing you can do for the world is breed with brains. That's, uh, <laughs> that's just about anything else. Everything other than that is just window dressing. Well, thanks David. A great chat. I really, really appreciate that. And, uh, thanks of course, everyone for uh, keeping us afloat and flourishing in this challenging time. Um, freedomainradio.com slash donate to uh, help out the show. Really appreciate that. Uh, FDRURL.com slash Amazon, as I may have mentioned once or twice before, if you've got some shopping to do, that will uh, help us uh, out and uh, Im- immensely. And, um, and we've got some great, great shows uh, coming out, uh, which I hope that you'll keep track of and, and watch. And um, have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful night. FreedomainRadio.com slash donate. We'll talk again soon.